Welcome to Mecha Nations, a critical analysis and rewatch podcast of all things Mecha. I'm one of your hosts, Ignis Maddox, and I don't know, who prints the whole book of gibberish, honestly? I'm Steven Hero. We have come a long way, haven't we? I'm PMC Trilogy, and from now on, Mecha Nations is a small podcast inside a larger podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm so into that. Okay. Poi poi fix indeed. Poi fix indeed. Man, you know what sucks about uh, a big old release, a big old uh, pop culture release coming out that is uh, within the wheelhouse of the thing that you discuss is uh, a whole bunch of people talking about the stuff that you talk about, but off base. <laughs> There's been a, a lot of... Uh, I'm talking about Final Fantasy VII Remake right now. I, I won't be... KG about it. Hello, everyone. This is the start of our podcast, by the way. I'm Ignis Maddox. And normally we would start by going through each other sort of like, hey, what have we been up to recently? But I got to get this off my chest. I got to start. This is this is a, a, a thing, a, a way for me to talk about this. I like how uh, Ignis is starting it today. Because he, because AMC and I haven't talked yet, so it sounds like there was like something tragic happened. Like, hello, I'm Ignis Maddox here. And it's like no, a very no, no. serious opening. That's why I'm. That's why I'm, I'm. I am taking the time to introduce myself, just because uh, uh, I might be. I might be. Uh, this is a bad time for sharing takes right now, because uh, if you share a take right now, everyone in the world is ready to obliterate your take out of the internet. <laughs> yeah, it's very uh, uh, gladiatorial. Yeah. See. See the the recent um, uh, shoplifting is is bad thing that happened recently, and also the 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 very badly loaned stitch take. Not to, to instantly date our podcast. I have the not, PMC just shakes his head. <laughs> I have not. I so I'm for whatever reason the way I've crafted my Twitter sphere is I am like intensely aware. I'm like, like I only get the meta takes where, where it's like, oh yeah, can you yeah, believe yeah. that Lilo and Stitch discourse? But I never actually see the original <laughs> take, so I'm just left to put things together from context clues. Well, so the thing that's complicated about this, it, it, and it's and, and simultaneously not complicated, is how it's it is on one hand it in itself just a kind of a bad take, right? But the the problem with it on a like kind of uh, eagle eye sort of perspective is how it it kind of appears to be the product of a particular flavor of critique that has like not emerged on the internet. Like this just in bad critique is forever. <laughs> Like, you know, the bad takes didn't emerge from the internet, but um, the internet has kind of, like, put a big spotlight on because of things like Cinema Sins or, like, Grifter Channels, which are, like, all, like, sort of bent on a sort of particular bend of quote-unquote critique and, and, and is sort of exacerbated by what, what I would call, like, less uh purposefully like sabotaging things where the idea is less to you know dig into why a thing matters or, or you know the substance behind a thing but rather to sort of just like participate in the discussion of it i don't think those things are bad per se as much as it's just this sort of culture thing anyway the the lilo and stitch take is is more complicated than just the bad take itself even though the bad take itself is quite bad it's more about like oh our relationship to fiction is like busted in in this really complicated way that this take seems to exemplify 
Um, I don't know. PMC before I, I don't. I'm not going to go into the take because it doesn't. Please really, don't. I don't want to know. I really don't. It, it doesn't. I don't really, even know what you guys are talking about. Yeah, I mean, Stephen Hero, you live in a blissful world where uh, uh, you, you, like, if you hear about this stuff, it seems to be from us. And I wish I were you. <laughs> like, I, I wish I had this like strength of character to stay offline, like you do. Like, honestly. Um, but PMC, have you seen Lilo and Stitch yet? Not to I call not. you out. Everything I know about Lilo and Stitch at this point, I got from Kingdom Hearts: Birth by Sleep. Here's what I would say: Lilo and Stitch, Stephen Hero, uh, PMC is is not really like uh, what I would call vulnerable to the the uh, the emotional attacks that that Disney films will will lob at people. And I'm not. This is not a critique. This is just a thing. No, that's fair. It, it, it just doesn't necessarily work for everybody, and it depends on a lot of factors. Lilo and Stitch will work for PMC. You will enjoy Lilo and Stitch. It's good. It's cool. in, a, in a sincere way, and 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 I don't mean that in the like. And that means it's actually good if PMC likes it. I I just mean that because he is a friend of mine who who I am close with. I understand his taste, and he tends to when when uh, there is earnestness in a text, he tends to uh, detect it and appreciate it. So it's, uh, it's Lilo and Stitch and Iron Man 2, then? That's in the Valhalla of uh, cinematography for people. Iron Man listen, 2, still the best MCU film. Listen, Thanks for coming it, to my TED Talk. There, there are, listen, there are many, many flavors of, we, of PMC taste we could get here. <laughs> uh, just because I didn't mention the contrarianism doesn't mean it's not a thing. <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, th- th- in any case, the, the reason I, I, I bring this up is not because of the bad Lilo and Stitch take, but because of this new take I will now pr- profess into the world. Which is that um, I wish that we had a better way to talk about writing that has been adapted from a Japanese text other than to just call it bad. <laughs> like, I really wish I really wish we had as a, like a, a society of technology that we could we could really get into. Like when you say like, ah, this dialogue is bad. Like, I wish like there was a goblin that would appear on your shoulder and, and just start like slapping you until you explain what you mean. Like, just like I, I don't necessarily want you to agree with me and be like yes this dialogue is actually good but i would really like you to show your work <laughs> like please like in the margins please explain to me because final fantasy 7 right now final fantasy 7 remake is 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 a thing right now uh and uh i i while i've been playing it i'm not super far because i i haven't been feeling well um but i've been reading a lot of shit about it and a lot of it is good a lot of it is fun uh the the, the fun memes about how tifa and eris are great are, are good like yes we all know this thank you um but some of the conversation about it on a as a cultural piece has been frustrating <laughs> because i feel like and and i don't know if this is just because of uh who we or even i am as as a person who has been you know in it as like a cultural you know position like you know as far as japanese cultural products go right like i have been in this for you know most of my adult life at this point like i don't know like 16 17 years if you wanted to be real like and and so a lot of these conversations about like ah how can i take this seriously when the dialogue is so awkward or like you know uh, these these voice acting performances and i'm calling myself out too because I, I i do that with this girl in the gone dub i, I will uh, shout out to myself for for not really being very open to this dub being as good as the the sub performances in my opinion but like Man, I feel like I wish we had a better way to talk about this stuff. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's like for some people, if it sounds insincere for me to start this off, it's like, well, this is pretty good. If you consider this is like you're hearing this through basically the equivalent of a a cultural equivalent of a cardboard tube with like a a, like a, you know, 
with with some like like uh, uh what's the word I'm looking for? Wire. I don't, with some wire or like not necessarily something that's like covering up what you'd be normally hearing, mm. but it's something that's like altering it, like a like I forget what it's called, but the sort of uh. Uh, lenses you would put in front of a uh, a bright light to change the the color of the light. I forget what they're called. Some kind of yeah, like like filter or mask or something. Yeah, a mask, a filter. Yeah, like uh, you know. And I'm not even saying that translating something from Japanese to English like tarnishes it. That's that's not what I mean. I'm saying when you do one thing to another thing, <laughs> it is it is going to alter it. And and there is a sort of particular flavor of that that has become prevalent when it comes to Japanese to English stuff in particular with games right uh, and I just feel like we're we're all sort of suddenly talking about this um, I don't know maybe I'm I'm talking about something that's in a particular like sphere that I'm in have you guys seen any of this or not really yeah I, I could definitely see that when I think this is just most people's inability to work with the text critically uh, like water cooler talk perpetually when they say like this is I often hear this take from people who don't play a lot of Japanese games and let's say if they're playing Final Fantasy VII Remake for the first time or if they're playing something like Kingdom Hearts for example they might say that if they say the dialogue if they say they don't like dialogue in most Japanese games it's usually shorthand for this is an assumption on my part but it's too stiff and too commercialized or it's too horny or it's too <laughs> awkwardly sexualized at times and i feel people use that as a crutch as shorthand to not really dive into the issues more critically like for example and i say this all the time with certain issues i have with certain text if i say something is unearned and if i don't go into that further people tend to toss that around like oh this is unearned or this is unearned but then you have to do the heavy lifting of explaining what you mean by that and people are unwilling or incapable of going beyond that yeah, I think, you know, I think about this a lot, too, because saying you're not engaging critically with something that makes you maybe uncomfortable, I think, is a, a big interpretation problem. I mean, we're talking about the Final Fantasy series, which, of course, to me, has one of the most famous examples of this of, of all time, which is, you know, the Titus laughing scene, yeah. which is a scene that if you look at what's going on, you know, J.A.T. kills it. It's a great scene. It makes sense for the characters. But if you're just like, oh, why aren't they cool? Why don't they make me feel cool? And I, and I think, you know, if I were to try to be like, what is, what is plaguing the state of Denmark? What is plaguing the state of, you know, engaging with texts? It's letting your identity lead you around when you when you uh, engage with the text. You know, it's it's. This is why I think works that are uh, that are clever or try to outguess you are, are sort of considered very popular right now, rather than emotionally earnest works. Is that there, you know that cleverness is sort of unimpeachable as opposed to having actual you know emotional uh, emotionally intelligent conversations? Yeah, I think it's a really good point. Actually, you know um, that that sort of point about uh, texts that are being too clever or not being too clever, but are trying to be more clever than than uh, emotionally honest, or or an audience is trying to outwit the text, which is another issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, was kind of a thing that produced the the badly loan stitch take. But enough of the terrible internet. Honestly, what? How are how are you boys doing? PMC, do you wanna do you wanna take us away? You you had some stuff happen. Oh, or yeah. you... I had a busy week. I actually, had, I had a surprise. Uh, so Armored Core had its like surprise English language <laughs> speedrun marathon debut. 
Uh, so I, I think I had mentioned in our last uh, Marin that I was going to be running a recoil tank game. I think that went really well for the ESA together, the European Speedrunner Assembly yeah. Marathon. I was really happy with it. But then it also turns out that both me and the, the subsequent runner had sort of submitted our games on a lark, and we hadn't played them in several years, and they both got accepted. And both of us then went back to the games and discovered like 20 minutes of time save. So that was going to put the marathon way ahead of schedule. And so I ended up doing Armored Core Project Phantasma any percent to sort of get the marathon back to schedule, you know, sort of a bonus run to fit things in. And it went mostly well. The, the thing that was unusual about it was it was actually my first time doing the speed run on uh on ps2 normally when i've done project phantasma i do it on the japanese pstv version using a ps3 controller which is the one you use with pstv and this time i had a disc i put it in my ps2 did the uh north american version and it most of the clips worked really well one of them didn't thankfully i'm a responsible adult i made backup saves so i was able to just sort of get past it and most of the rest of the run went fine uh so that was a lot that was a lot of fun uh i as of the date of release of this podcast, on April 19th, 2020, I will be doing the raw, uncensored, Armored Core 1, any percent speedrun uh, at ValueThon uh, 2018. And then also, uh, we're recording this on Easter Sunday. So a day after that, the, the, the Corona Relief Done Quick, which is the GDQ online marathon for uh, you know doing donations for a Corona Relief-based uh, cause will release its game schedule, and that marathon will be this weekend. <laughs> it's the 17th through the 19th. Uh, yeah. Given that it's such a short marathon schedule, my feeling is that my stuff, you know, which is not super popular stuff, has a pretty long shot of, uh, of getting in. But, you know, who knows? Maybe it'll happen. I have no idea. So, uh, but that's, uh, that's the gaming, gaming stuff. Um, besides that, still watching Iron Blooded Orphans. That's about the same. Nothing, nothing has happened one way or the other to really... Uh, change my thoughts about that and then um, mm. closing in on the end of shadow hearts covenant which is uh conti- we had a lot of <laughs> japanese politics some real life japanese spies and battleships we were on the mikasa which apparently in 2020 is the only remaining pre-dreadnought battleship still in existence ah. so that's cool naval history uh but yeah do you uh, uh, well, I was uh, checking in on some recoil practice this week, PMC, and mm-hmm. uh, it started a conversation about in in the Ignis household if recoil is a mech game, uh, and uh, you know, obviously this is this is that that weird line as far as like, and one that we've definitely talked about on this show where it's like, well, yeah, it's a, it's a it's, you know, it's a mech with a pilot and it's a it's a weapon sort of thing, and so I could see where you'd say that, but. There's a there's a fine line sort of thing. Where would you fall in that as a, as our our seminal our recoil expert here? So I think my my argument is that it's it's sort of a I think a weak argument, but my argument is a mech. I should mention that in the fiction of recoil, you are in the far future of March 2019. Oh no! <laughs> and the rebels who are rebelling against the Skynet like network have sent the tank control program back through time to you the player of the video game so the fiction of recoil is that it is literally you you're controlling the tank through time to save the day from you know to save march 2019 yeah and uh, but so even though it's remote control of course i think we you know we would still i I would still say you know to some extent I, i think i'm okay with it being a mech the other thing i would say though is that because of how 
freeing the game is. You know, I, I think that's really something that stands out to me compared to most tank simulation games. Because most tank simulation games are really going to box you in with how you can shoot and how you can change weapons. Whereas this is like practically a first-person shooter in the freedom that you have to aim and also in the array of weapons that you can just constantly switch with. Like you, you know, you know, In much the same way that you play Doom Eternal and you're constantly cycling through all your weapons, you right. can play this game just like that. So well, so and and to take it a step further, even and I think this is what you were ex- saying anyway. Even regarding the, mm-hmm. the remote control aspect of it, I feel like the the concept of of a uh, uh, a program that allows you to that through time, uh, it, it, you know, pilot this uh, <laughs> super weapon is very mech embodiment, right? Like, but it's only the video gaminess of it that makes it mechish embodiment rather than. The concept itself, like if we were watching the show, I'd be like, I don't know if this should be on our podcast, <laughs> right? I mean, I, yeah, game, I think the the simulation nature of it sort of, uh, yes, you know, exactly. imposes that structure, that embodiment. Yes, yeah. I agree. Uh, uh, PMC, I well, I was about to move on to Steven Hero, but PMC, did you have any other? Because uh, I know with with Shadow Hearts is just about done. I know you're going to be moving on to Trails of Cold Steel after that. Um, uh, I believe. I might need a new sub game soon. Yeah, I don't want to curse yeah, myself. Don't, don't jinx it too hard, but I'm hopeful yeah. as well. Uh, uh, yeah, that'll be interesting. Um, the only uh, thing I would uh, say is that this week I'm going to try once again to get a, uh, a sub two hour time in the Armored Core PS1 trilogy. That's been one of my goals, and since I'm since I need to practice Armored Core one anyway for for value thought. The only reason that would change though. If I did get a run in the CRDQ and let's say like it's Die Hard or something, I would have to practice that game. But right. uh, but the current plan, as of this time, before tomorrow, uh, that's the goal is to do some Armored Core trilogy runs this week and hopefully achieve a sub two hour time for all three games in a row. All right. Well, good luck with that. Hopefully that goes well. I have I have faith that something will will uh, uh, reveal itself with you know mm-hmm. effort with the the. Uh, sub two hour runs hopefully yeah uh, is my sub still nocturne yes <laughs> feel free to change it buddy <laughs> it's gonna be another smt game Why? i feel like i i feel like the way that um steven hero asked pmc is is how griffith must ask guts if he still has that tattoo like do you still have that fucking demon tattoo <laughs> And Griffin Guts just growls at him in the exact same way PNC does. But yeah, um, uh, Stephen Hero, you, I believe, had finished with Fire Emblem Sharp. That's not what it's called, but it is. Tokyo Mirage Sessions. Yes, that's the one. Uh, are you are you a uh, are you uh, delving into that pizza like I am uh, in, in Final Fantasy VII R, or uh, did you have something else on your plate? Well, I have a few things. So one of my New Year's resolutions... Um my, I find my thoughts can be a bit scatterbrained at the end of the week, so in order to really hone in on some things I've been experiencing, I wanted to like almost keep a journal of what I've been watching and what I've been uh, playing, so I've been doing that, but I have a, a few things, so I'm going to give you guys the option. We could talk about Final Fantasy VII, which I'm very warm on. I'm only three chapters in, maybe four or five hours so far. I've been doing a lot of the side quests. Nice. We, we could talk Star Trek Discovery Season 1 or Resident Evil 3, your choice, or, or we could just shoot the shit about uh, Final Fantasy. 
Um, so why don't we wait on Final Fantasy VII Remake? And and the only reason why is because I think it would be easier, not for spoiler reasons. As the spoiler boy, obviously, I'm immune to all spoilers. Um, but uh, Final Fantasy VII, I feel like, without taking the words out of PMC's mouth, is, like, enough of a thing where I would be like, well, I would like to preserve PMC's experience of Final Fantasy VII Remake uh, uh, beyond vagaries, right? Stuff that he's going to run into just because of the sphere that he's into. PMC, do you feel like that's fair? Do you, like, you know, I feel like you probably don't care, but that's that's I'm my... Not, I'm not too, too worried. I mean, as I've already said before, I, I don't think it's something I'm going to get too soon. And because I know people want to talk about it so bad, like, I'm I'm also not concerned, though, as well. You know, I, I, when it comes to RPGs and spoilers, uh, especially a game as big as uh, 7 Remake appears to be, I find like I find that the the pacing, the pace at which you take a game like that, the difficulty, the weapons, the equipment, the approach you take, they're going to be so personal to you anyway that I think right. even if you tell me about a plot point, that plot point maybe not that important to me and all like it's not going to be the thing that dictates my ability to really enjoy the game. I mean, spoilers don't matter. Right. All those things, I'm right there with you. Yeah. So but, what but despite all that being said, I, I kind of I want to hear the Steven Hero Resident Evil three take. I'm yeah. very curious about that personally. All right, good. I, I wrote up a bit just before because I know our ver- definition, not definitions. Everyone has their own personal takes, but I, I think our preferred Resident Evil style is a bit different. But I'm, I'm overall pretty positive about the game. I'm going to come across as being negative, but before I really jump in, I'm going to delineate what I see as the three major strains, styles of Resident Evil. This these aren't new takes. These are if I say. Give me three categories of Resident Evil, three blends of Resident Evil. You're probably going to produce the same exact blends. But starting off, we have, in camp number one, pure survival horror RE. All right, so this would be in my book, not counting the various offshoots, but we have original releases of one through three, remake, remake two. They tend to emphasize environmental storytelling, ammo conservation, resource management, and overall tense enemy encounters. And I'll just do some table setting off the bat. This is my preferred style. All right, I know this sounds paradoxical, but I derive pleasure from being scared. It's one of my, you know, just like people who like roller coasters, they get a thrill from the fear, the anxiety, perhaps. They get a high off of it. And it's, I hate roller coasters, but it's similar for me with um, horror movies, but particularly horror video games. There's an oddly, you know stimulating feeling about standing in front of a closed door and not knowing what is behind the door. And I think this feeling is reinforced in how the environments are constructed in classic RE, very claustrophobic, but also incredibly handcrafted, very claustrophobic, but very like handcrafted and loving, lovingly crafted environments, but also with the gameplay as well. Um, you have to stay alive with an ever-dwindling set of resources or if you do it correctly you have you might have more resources resources than you think to continue on your journey on and you get that's satisfying too if you manage your resources correctly i am very frugal when i am playing resident evil games i tend to hoard as much animal as much as possible every encounter is very strategic even if i'm playing the action games which usually means i have a glut of ammo at the end of the game i derive pleasure from going all right do I have to necessarily kill the zombie? Can I walk around a desk and avoid him that way? And I try to keep a running map in my mind about where enemy placement is. 
And I really do like the environments and the small details that go into crafting these environments. Like, for example, I get more pleasure reading a note that some scientist wrote his daughter than the soap opera drama surrounding stars. I, I do like that more than I care to admit at times, but I really do like these small stories told within RE, usually dealing with nameless people, and it's usually those small environmental bits. Action RE is the second blend of uh, Resident Evil as I'm defining it. This would be pure action. This would be Resident Evil 5, Resident Evil 6, emphasizing narrative spectacle, sometimes in the form of QTEs, sometimes not, um, really frenetic enemy encounters, and generally, if you're only focusing on these two games, co-op gameplay. And again, I, I still like the action games, the pure action games as I define them. I'm fond of Resident Evil 5 in particular if I am playing with someone else. I really do think the game is a slog single player. Uh, mm. Resident Evil 6 can go take a walk into a, a dumpster fire as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. But, uh, and even then, I, st- I still kind of like it at times. So Hybrid RE, which I also really do like, is my third blend. Best of both worlds. Um, this would be Resident Evil 4 and Resident Evil 7. I'm discounting a lot of the spinoffs here just for time's sake. But Resident Evil 3 really does take the latter approach. It dramatically... And in that, the latter approach meaning the hybrid approach, and it really does change the DNA of the original game, which isn't really necessarily a bad thing, because Resident Evil 3 is not, out of that original category, is by far the worst of the five games I listed. But of course, you play as two characters. You play as Jill Valentine and Carlos uh, Oliveira as they trudge through Raccoon City. As they trudge through Raccoon City, they are uncovering the corruption of and the evils committed by Umbrella Corporation. Of course, this is happening at the same time as the events of Resident Evil 2. And in a design design doc sense, when I was playing this game, I got the feeling that they wanted the Jill sections to play as more classic RE and the Carlos sections to play more as action RE, which on paper sounds cool. My biggest issue with this is they are really watered-down versions of the ideal of both of those concepts, so you get a really middling experience. Like, for example, with the Jill gameplay, um, there's almost a glut of ammo. Now, if, if you like action already, you would say, that's fine, bro. But bro, this eliminates any sense of urgency on my part. Uh, there's a dram- drastically reduced sense of exploration as well. Like, for example, later in the game when you are revisiting the Raccoon City Police Department, all of the doors are locked. Most of the doors are locked. And I really love in Resident Evil 2 Remake just getting the keys, finding out which key goes into what hole, and like a Metroidvania game, slowly exploring that environment. And really, you lose all of that. You're just running and gunning throughout a set number of hallways. And the environment's overall nowhere near as dynamic. It's a lot of hallways and just running down hallways. But I'll get to that in one second. Nemesis overall, I I have some issues with Nemesis, namely, in the, let's talk about Mr. X real quick for Resident Evil 2. I think Mr. X really does work because he's very systemic. He literally is, if you take a look at the code in the game, he is literally walking through the police department in undisclosed locations, and at certain times in the game you could hear him walking, and that creates a great sense of tension, but you don't know where he is necessarily. In RE3 with Nemesis, he will just pop out, and generally he becomes kind of a goofball, because he will chase you down one select corridor, but then he will stop. Or, as you get later in the game, he will pop off 
or pop in for these QTE moments. But unlike Resident Evil 4, for example, you are sometimes not prompted, so sometimes you don't know if you are in a cutscene or if you are in gameplay, and I find that infuriating because I died a few times that way. I, of course, I, I get what they want. In 2020, they f- I assume they didn't want the game to appear too video gamey, so they don't have the button prompts on the screen, like with RE4, for example. But going down that approach, I would have much preferred that because it comes off as cheap otherwise. And even in the Carlos sections, the environments don't take advantage of his increased mobility or his increased firepower. He kind of plays like Chris from Resident Evil 5, but like for Resident Evil 5, you have these very dynamic environments, kind of like a mercenaries mode in Resident Evil 4, where you can have a lot of fun just gunning down these zombos. But in Resident Evil 3, because it's kind of that hybrid approach, you are in closed corridors, but it kind of becomes like an insipid shooting gallery when you're Mm. just shooting maybe three zombies in front of you with your increased firepower. However, it's still a pretty good game. It hits a lot of those major RE beats, has great atmosphere. It does cut, cut out some of the cooler locations from the original game, like the Clock Tower. But it, it is fun to revisit some of these locations. You get some really good storytelling with the, I can't remember his name, but the cop that Leon briefly befriends in Resident Evil 2. Marvin. 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 And you get some cool, you know, you get some more, you get some Brad Vickers uh, little lore drops. <laughs> and, Brad Vickers. And is of it course, true, I, I have the question, is it yeah. true that uh, Marvin gets was screwed over by Brad Vickers? Is that is that a plot beat? Yes. Okay, it does. All right. Screwed over might be a little too strong, but yes, basically. Okay. But anyway, it's it's fun to traverse these environments. The gameplay is fun. I, the people who are saying complaining about the length of the game, I kind of say fuck off to that. Like, I get the criticism. It is a shorter game. I love shorter games. The older I get, but it's a great palate cleanser. To be honest, if they, I, I spent eight hours with the game. I'm sure people, I, a personal friend of mine, beat it originally in his first playthrough in about four hours. But it would ha, it would be excessive otherwise. I think that they acknowledge that whatever DNA of the game they had, that's it in the four to seven hours. Anything more would be redundant and excessive. But one more thing I will say as a general criticism, I remember I was talking to Ignis around the time Breath of the Wild came out, a game I'm really warm on, but one of the criticisms of the game was you said that as opposed to other Zelda games, it doesn't have like a distinct thesis. And I agree with, I see, I use that critique for Resident Evil 3 as well. It seems uninspired, whereas I can like think about Resident Evil 4 or Resident Evil 1 or 2 or even 5, and like I have a distinct either location or a distinct like 30-second gameplay loop in my mind. Whereas with Resident Evil 3, I really don't. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, just off the top of my head, I, I think something that's really interesting about Resident Evil 3, uh, I, I wonder if they decided early on that because Resident Evil 3 is, you know, titled Nemesis and is, is you know, at its core about the, the sort of relationship between Jill and Nemesis and not in the way that the movies did it. Uh, I mean, in, you know, the, the way that, that Nemesis as a uh, construct will say, yeah, let's go with that, uh, 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 you know, shapes the, your relationship to the mechanics of the gameplay. I think a lot of people, when Resident Evil 2 came out and Mr. X was the way that they were, I think a lot of people really got excited, right? Because it, it's so functional. It works exactly how you'd figure, like, a a 
uh, uh, you know, slasher villain simulator would work, right? Like it, it, with the the thumpy footsteps and the very very imposing figure and the the way that it, it it's effective even with the knowledge that people have turned him into Thomas the Tank Engine and and stuff like that. Um, I think people saw that and were like, oh, well, Nemesis is going to be great. And and I think the realities of like because this game came out like what is this like a, a year after almost precisely Resident Evil Two. Yeah, Resident Evil Two was twenty like twenty eight like the end of twenty eighteen or the beginning of twenty nineteen. Yeah, it was right? early twenty nineteen, and so this is like a year and change, like a year and two months or something. I think. Yeah. So with that in mind, like I don't know this everything that you just said, Stephen Hero, good and bad, kind of tracks, right? Like for better or for worse, um, it, it takes it more time to make good stealth because it's about good performances, right? It's about good setup and payoff. It's about not stealth, I'm sorry. Good horror. Horror is what I meant. Um, yeah, because... they drastically improved and more dynamic environments to support a more systemic nemesis, nemesis if that's the route they wanted to go with. Right. Well, because like, good good horror in the, the style of – if we're working off of the schema that, that uh, Stephen Hero set up, in the first set of Resident Evil games, your RE1, 2, and 3 original style um, – uh, I guess not 3 – uh, anyway, uh, the the way that horror worked there was a combination of lack of resources, lack of control, and the way that, that things were set up. I don't want to call them set pieces because I think set piece means something different now, right? A Resident Evil 1 original set piece means something different than Resident Evil 4 set pieces, right? I'm thinking about, like, at one point in Resident Evil 4, you're in Salazar's castle... Uh, and like you find like a robot of Salazar and you have to like jump on its hands as it raises you up and down. Like that's a set piece, right? Like that, that, and like it later it chases you. Like, do, do you see where the difference is between that and a dog jumps through a window when I say yeah. set piece? Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what I, I think what happened was they were like, okay, we have a year to make Resident Evil 3. Resident Evil 3 is about rather than the creeping fear of the inevitable like Mr. X kind of represents like Nemesis is much more of like you know uh, this is a bad example because Spielberg did it correctly in the original Jaws but he's Jaws right mm-hmm. where like you're you're there to see Nemesis eventually right and paradoxically you know i i think a more mechanically effective Nemesis game well one would have taken more time obviously because that's just not as easy to do as a hallway where Nemesis pops up in this specific way. And in order to survive, you need to do this one either button combination or specific thing, right? Like, that's, yeah, that I takes will, longer to do. I will say he is slightly more... The encounters are slightly more dynamic in the very beginning of the game when you are in a slightly more open Raccoon City. It's not all hallways. That's where he, when he works best in the game. Yeah, uh, the other thing is also, I'm not here to be the Resident Evil 3 defense squad. I haven't played it. <laughs> I, I just, for me, I, I feel like there is a, uh, I, I don't know, I, I can see where people got uh, excited about what uh, Resident Evil 2 had to offer and what it could mean for future Resident Evils. Um, but I, I feel like there is a, a lot of, um, I don't know what you expected in my reaction to a lot of people's reactions, but it, it, what's nice about it is that it, it really has allowed it, me to put it on the back burner as something that like I want to get to eventually. Uh, and I feel like 
as someone who, and I'm not saying this as a call out to you, Steven Hero, uh, but I feel like that puts me in a good position to enjoy that relationship with it, right? Yeah, like, just borrow my copy. You'll finish yeah, the weekend. I, For all the complaining I'm doing, I would happily suck at the teat that is Capcom each year for a six to eight hour Resident Evil experience like this. I would have oh, to yeah. give $60 each time. It's it's a very, Resident, like I said before, Resident Evil is a very cozy experience for me, even at its most either terrifying or frenetic, and I am always willing to jump back into this world. Well, Steven Hero, I've got good news for you because I've got this monkey paw here next to me, and uh, one of its fingers is curling horribly, and it says on the fingernail, Resident Evil 4 Remake. So yeah. so congratulations. <laughs> your, your wish has come true. <laughs> I've been so conditioned not to believe any rumors at this point that like I, I realize, I don't know, I will say, I, I, like, it sounds credible because I feel like it makes sense given you know the, the reasons money. for making remakes. But yeah, money. Right, exactly. But also... I don't know. Like, I, <laughs> the trusted insider Dusk Golem doesn't seem like a reputable source. I don't know. <laughs> oh, oh, sure. And there's also a big part of me, and and like maybe this is like my dumb dumb brain, but like there's a part of me that hopes that they know that this isn't a great idea. <laughs> like that that there just wouldn't be much to gain, right? Like Resident Evil Four is very modern as Resident Evils go. But, you know, it's fine. Right. Yeah. And the other thing, too, right, is they'd probably use, uh, instead of getting the actual Leon Kennedy voice, they would re- repeat the sin of RE2 remake and get non-union oh, no. actors again. Right? Could you yeah. imagine an RE4 remake with non-union actors? Yeah. What the fuck? No, thanks. <laughs> well, that's yeah, the other take- thing... If Sorry, go ahead, ru- Steven. If you take the rumors at face value, the, a company called M2, they are the ones who did a lot of the heavy lifting on Resident Evil 2 remake and Resident Evil 3, working, of course, with Capcom internal. And I assume that if, if this rumor is true, they are just almost jumping from remake project to remake project. But if the if you don't do Code Veronica, and that would be a tough remake to like land, I don't know what other games there are really on their plate potentially. See, Dino Crisis, maybe. Right. I would you, you have to get to Dino the other Crisis. survival horror games or or the other spinoffs. You know, you want to you, you would say make Gun Survivor in the style of RE Seven or something, right? Like you you have to start digging deep. I mean, this doesn't make sense. This isn't like this is one of those things that you say as a child because you don't know how the industry works. But you, you know what I'd want them to do is the Parasite Eve remake. Please do that. <laughs> like these guys would be great for the Parasite Eve remake. They are exactly juicy enough with this gross engine for the Parasite Eve remake. Um, but no, that would that that's not happening. Uh, uh, not from these guys anyway. I'm not saying it seems like there's interest for a Parasite Eve remake, but. If I say it out loud, this monkey's paw, well, oh, never mind, there it goes. All right. Uh, in any case, uh, I I don't have, uh, me, Ignis, I don't have much to report other than that. Uh, I have, uh, uh, work has been uh, weird in, in this new sort of normal for me, and it's actually weirdly, like, prevented more normal gaming on my front, but that's fine. I'll get it figured out eventually. To put it in simple terms, it's fighting spirit. Why didn't you say that in the first place? But with that in mind, how, how are you guys feeling about talking about some Gurren Lagan? We've got this is a this is a weird like like f- double flavored Oreo we've got this week as far as like episode tones go. <laughs> like we're we're gonna move from from kind of somber to maybe triumphant to somber again. 
Um, yeah. Tw- but, episode twenty three, you'll cry. Episode twenty four, you'll cry some more, and probably yeah, harder. but but a different reason though. <laughs> like it'll, it's gonna hit every single different beat that you could possibly want. But but are you boys ready? You think? Let's go. Yeah. All right, I, that'll bring us then. Let's go to our final battle, episode twenty three. Not our final battle, <laughs> but we'll we'll go there. We'll get there. The Tiger Endon return home victorious, but not to rest to plan. After fighting off the anti-spirals, their mission statement made the next step clear. The fight needs to be taken to them, the anti-spirals, sooner rather than later, for Earth's and Nia's sake. Meanwhile, Roshiu contemplates his actions, along with Father Magin at the village where he grew up. They share much, but also hide much, from the world and each other. Roshiu leaves to be alone, as alone as he can be, but is interrupted by the Gurn Lagan. Along with the new Cathedral Terra Spiral Energy Generator, Simone and Keenon discover the means to teleport, teleport, uh, teleport through space-time. Simone admonishes Roshi for his brashness, but comforts and reassures him that he did the best he could. With new resolve and spiffy new space outfits, our heroes pursue their enemies beyond time itself. So 23 is, in my opinion, a, a sort of cap to the Roshiu arc. It, it's mostly there to end our activity on Earth and to let us go to space without any sort of, like, ties. It, it makes t- careful, like, it pays t- careful attention to everyone with a tie to Earth, right? Do um, we get the font change in this episode, though? Yes. I yes. can't remember. Yeah. I, I wish they kept... Yeah. I, I like, like, you know, things clearly delineated, as you can tell from my Marin, and I would have wished they'd kept the Roshiu very bureaucratic font for this final episode. Yeah, that's interesting. That's actually a good point. I I don't um, I didn't think about that, but I I can see where you'd say that because it is the um, it, it is very much still like Roshu's episode. Like we're we're gonna probably be spending most of our time again, <laughs> well, same as the last two episodes talking about Roshu, which you know, it's a testament to his character, right? I, I think we talked about that last week that that uh, he serves a very important role to the text. Um, you know, uh, I want to start us off at the very beginning of the episode where we're kind of having our, uh, uh, I forget, like this round table. I forget what they call it in um, uh, Star Trek where they go to the mission room. Uh, uh, that one like nice looking conference room that they have everything in. <sighs> That's a good yeah, question. I know. I know. I've seen a lot of fucking Star Trek. I don't remember. Uh, you know, ops is what I'd say because I'm a deep space and I'm a niner. So, you know, <laughs> um, but I really enjoy how the first thing the episode chooses to do is kind of resolve the Viral question, right? There's a, there's a, a certain sort of like narrative person where th- they might be like, oh, we're just kind of cool with the guy who killed Kamina it, it, it hanging it, with, with, with us here. But the way that they choose to sort of, like, reveal why people are, are good with it is, I, I think, really apt. Uh, you know, I think Keaton being the one who puts to words, uh, you know, Simone is the one who chose you specifically, and, and that makes you the same as us. I, I really appreciate Keaton's role in the last couple episodes. Like, he is really solidifying himself as a, a, a spine, like a, a sort of... We hear the term invisible labor a lot about folks who perform really necessary tasks but don't get the the acclaim for it either due to lack of care or due to the nature of their job being such that no singular person could really take on the amount of praise that they actually need. 
Uh, Keaton's very much that for the Digerendon. Like he he serves an important role, but can't actually. You know, part of it is a joke. Even when he says like, "Yeah, love and peace saves the world," and and Yoko's like, uh, "It doesn't uh, it doesn't sound cool." And you say it. He's like, "Kiss my ass. Fuck off." <laughs> I respect that. What do you guys think about this bit? Like, I know I'm, I call out all these like Viral as, as warrior poet moments, but this stuck out to me. I'm just glad that a beast man has a seat at the table. Like I keep talking about this show and I might actually write a bit about it. Um, you know, advocating for permanent revolution, not to say that necessarily the status quo or the system has to be constantly upended every few years, but that the status quo needs to be checked to some degree. And we see throughout the show that the revolutionary aims continue to evolve. At the beginning, it was just a bunch of humans banding together to overthrow the oppression of the Spiral King. But now we see that beastmen and humanity are joining together in order to combat an even greater uh, enemy and in order to secure some sense of stability and prosperity and equality for their entire two populations and i i like that i like how they have that added depth to it i would also say that i think here the viral stepping up and sort of announcing like are you guys okay with this is really more important for viral than it is for the rest of the crew because i think the the response you know the sort of deeply empathetic response you know simone chose you etc uh you know i i I would almost expect i think that that fits but really viral who uh, throughout the series has often been concerned with structure and you know you know calling him sort of a warrior poet i think sort of fits with that his ideas of how things should be uh he would be the one to voice this sort of concern even more than the others bringing it up and you know assuring him that it's okay yeah, that's actually a really good point. I, I completely agree with that. That it, this is the sort of thing that he would be concerned with, and and this is consistent with what we've seen in his surface to you know Thimilf, and then to a DNA, and then to the, the Spiral King. He didn't really work with um, uh, uh, Bird, uh, Birdman, Cytomander, Cytomander, and Guam as 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 much directly anyway. Uh, Actually, but, real yeah. quick, speaking of the Spiral King, it's weird how comfortable I am with his levitating head just on the ship, like our arch nemesis, but I'm like strangely comforted by his words. Like I, I'm kind of glad his presence is there for some odd reason. I don't know, maybe it's the the dub voice actor, but I just I'm it's something oddly comforting about his knowledge, which is a bit unsettling on my part, but yeah, what do you, do you guys have any thoughts about a uh, Spiral King? I was King? prepared for this by Futurama. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I I like that answer, but I'm I'm actually going to talk a little bit more about that in the next episode. Mm-hmm. There's a small uh, small moment that I want to talk about in the next episode when it comes to Lord Genome that I really appreciated. It's funny uh, that you mention a PMC Futurama because I got a lot of Futurama vibes from the next episode too. Oh man, next episode uh, the the aesthetic is such gunbuster and it's it's incredible. Yeah. Um. But yeah, we we uh, staying in this scene. Uh, we also get a a uh, a pre MCU Tony Stark hologram uh, handsy thing that that Leron's got. This is two thousand seven, so one year before Iron Man, I think. That's really where we started seeing. Well, oh, I, I would say if we were going to go to hand stuff and moving screens by waving your hands around, I feel like the the if you had asked me in two thousand what six or seven what what I would think of, I would still actually say Minority Report is probably oh, the sh- one I would go to. Oh, for sure, for sure. I'm not saying this is the original. Oh yeah, yeah I'm not saying I, they invented it, but just in terms of things that would have been on your mind for in sure. pop culture at the time. 
No, that's a super good point, though, to point out. No, honestly, that that is the uh, um, that sort of idea is one that uh, is pretty like. I think a standard mm-hmm. like what what is the next stage of of interacting with the computer interface? Right, people are like, oh, holograms, like some fancy shit on your wrist or out on your your fingertips. Um, what, what I appreciated about it, and it made me question how much of it was completely necessary, was how much he was moving. <laughs> like, there was a lot of continuous movement as he was bringing up the images. <laughs> um, I have also, I feel like I've given this presentation like 8 million times in my life, where I'm going through the, what, it, what it's, what I'm actually doing. What the actual thing, the, the it's and it, us and butts and the I's and the T's. Uh, and I look and I can see that no one's following. And then, so I just say it a different way. And it's just like, oh, okay, that's, that tracks. I, I love this beat. This is a good goof. Uh, I really like the physical gag, even though it's not a joke, of Yoko working on her gun stuff. Uh, this is something else that I wish we saw more of just because it would we, – we, you know, we were critical in, in the last episode of, of the lack of sort of insight into Yoko that, that all the time we spent with her in that, that episode didn't – give us right uh and this like sort of subtle uh visual beat of her checking all these individual mechanics uh i wish we had more of that i wish there was more like cowboy bebop-esque like sitting there quietly while some yoko kano music plays in the back that's my shit that's all (laughs) those quiet moments that we all that i specifically like crave like the beginning with coco and the payoff at the end i know we'll get there later but the beginning when he's just ironing the flag oh yeah yeah no i completely agree with you um but also just the beat of of our heroes just being big dummies and poor leron just having to (laughs) that comedic bit was very good i laughed a lot i liked it a lot i'm gonna be honest boys i struggled with this one i struggled and the reason I would say I, I struggled is because I like I understand that to some extent the show is being like, you know, our, our heroes are, are kind of dummies. And Leon's trying to explain some of the underpinnings. But like, really, this is what's important. You know, fighting spirits was important. The, the emotional beats are going to are going to carry us forward. And that's really what's going to be the, the story for us in the day. But I also even even when I think the narrative says like, you know, the Leron's contributions are important or, you know, we could also maybe tie this into sort of Roshu's contributions are important. At the same time, it, you know, often feels like because our heroes, um, I guess, aren't paying attention. Like, that's the thing, right? Is like, is, is it a, is it just the comedic goof or is it like we don't value? Now, we know that Leron's contributions are necessary and Roshu's contributions are necessary. But like, it sure feels like you're making fun of the engineer sometimes. And I don't know. It, obviously, I can. I still have fun with it. Like it's supposed to be funny, but like at the same time, I'm also like mm, fuming in the corner. See, from oh, go go on, Ignis. Uh, I I so the only thing I would say really is it is that it is less that the the actual specific mechanics don't matter, and more that we have thought about the specific mechanics. But that's not what storytelling is. So here's what storytelling is, <laughs> even though we do have an answer for the gobbledygook. Because ultimately it will be gobbledygook because we're talking about set pieces that aren't that real physics don't exist for, right? Like, that, that, that's, you know, the important thing is that we could find fakey fake words to justify what we're doing here, but, but here's what it is, is. And it also it establishes a truth about our characters, which is that, you know, 
there is even though they're they're they value each other in the way that they do and we will see in the next episode there is a certain amount that they still take for granted the work of other people right like even like attenborough right like uh we'll, we'll see attenborough his his over exuberant nature it manifests itself throughout his entire being apparently and he just grabs like a a leaning tower of shit that he's carrying around that roshi even his state is like attenborough please <laughs> can you can you not <laughs> um i actually anyway. think um i so i see where pmc is coming from i do like liron as kind of like the technical greek chorus like kind of like I don't know, we're Dante and he's our Virgil, but sometimes I do need to be shepherded through the technobabble. I know it usually doesn't matter, but it definitely helps me, like, I don't know, recalibrate with this world. Like, uh, end of Evangelion, when the apocalypse is going down, third impact, I need Fuyutsuki to, like, walk me through each step of the apocalypse. It It helps ground me to a degree, so I could also think about, like, the greater thematic things at play. So for me, it's helpful. There's a lot of characters in shows we watch that kind of do serve as, like, Sometimes the spokesperson of the creator or sometimes a, like, technician who can just walk us through this made-up bullshit. Like, for example, I'm uh, writing an essay on Pat Labor 2 now. I'm talking about the two Pat Labor films, but Goto often serves as this figure where he is almost embodied by the voice of the creator just to walk us through some of these thematic beats. Sometimes it's too heavy-handed, but I think sometimes it's necessary as well. And especially, I think it does fit how on-the-nose Gurren Lagann can be at times. The thing I want to stress and when it comes to this conversation is I think you could you could come away from this bit and you could say, aha, this is telling me that nothing matters. Hashtag nothing matters. But but really, I think what's important to stress is that there they could give you goof goof words to tell you what is happening. And, and Gynax is very capable of that because we've seen them do it. In, in Evangelion, as you've mentioned, in, in other, like, Fully Cooley does this a lot. There are very famous, long, almost monologue-type bits that are freeform and, and often kind of difficult to follow in, in other works like this. And I'm not saying that that means you should just take it on its face. But what I am saying is that uh, it, they have done enough of the homework for me that the it is easy to go along for the ride of the... Uh, uh, thing that they're dealing with not being explicable to the uh Gurren Lagan average team member and you know therefore not being extremely important for us the audience to understand like I feel like I I feel like this is wouldn't be a non-issue in uh, something like Star Wars right where uh you know in in there for some people i hate to bring this up because i'm i don't think this is a similar kind of like disagreement but this is like the easiest example i can think of like you know some people were rubbed the wrong way in the last jedi when fuel was an issue right because like have people talked about fuel even once in star wars (laughs) before that right like i just like you know listen and and my point is i i've slain steven hero and i apologize well by that Um, logic too there aren't explosions in space because there's not oxygen so how far are you going to take them it's a made-up thing like that's that's the the cinema that sins issues because you you're hold you're held enthralled by like this perceived notion of verisimilitude and cannot even do a deeper or more engaging reading than that Uh, those other people i'm saying and again, I want to stress that I don't think this is necessarily on the same level as that. What, what I'm saying is that, first off, this goof is also to set up a later goof where Lord Genome is explaining how the blink-you-can't-win works. And 
uh, Liron, our smarty smart guy, has no fucking clue. He's saying a, a bunch of words that are, are on the level of made up that, that Liron doesn't understand them. Like, they sound fictional on that level. Um, and so it's serving multiple purposes. It's not just sitting there to tell, like, an audience that, you know, the, the physics of what they're dealing with are, are not important. So you're going to see some crazy shit and you shouldn't worry about it. You should just, like, enjoy the ride. As much as it's saying that we're dealing with stuff that are beyond even the, the smartiest smart pants possible. Uh, which is the kind of the function that the Lord Genome is going to serve as, like, uh, as he transitions now from a uh, a relic of our, uh, you know, antagonistic past to a, you know, uh, valuable source of information, right? Like, as his relationship to the Daigurin Brigade is going to change his relationship to the Spiral Wars, or whatever you'd call them, uh... It, that is, I think, the the long and short of this particular like goof, right? Like, here's the thing: like, we, you know, we know the Daigurandan aren't smart. <laughs> like, it, it's and so the um, the, I don't think the purpose of this is necessarily to tell people that uh, the mechanics of what are going to happen in the future don't matter as much as it is that, uh, you know. Uh, it's a fun way to explain why we have capabilities now that we didn't previously, um, which is essentially all it, it was for this one episode. Actually, um, on, on that note, I do have a technical question since we're talking about it. Sure. So, so I just want to make sure we're getting this straight, or I'm getting this straight. So when Lord Genome returned to Earth, all right, defeated, all right, because the anti-spirals were victorious. Right. So he, came, he comes back to Earth. He builds Teppelin. And then he creates a race of beastmen in order to oppress and kill the subterranean population of humans in order to make sure that the human population never exceeds one million, which would then kick in the annihilation system, correct? So, okay, long story short, Teppelin he had already. Um, The the way that the anti-spirals won was that they convinced Lord Genome that that spiral nemesis was inevitable and and they, he succumbed to absolute despair he betrayed the other spiral warriors killed most of them and then returned to earth with what was left over which included teplin and mm-hmm. the cathedral terror and the arcgarin and what have you um lord genome likes animals more than he does people so he created a race of clone animals that would follow his every whim uh, and he basically used them to lackadaisically keep people underground to – I'm not even positive how he knew about the uh, – maybe the anti-spirals told him about the human annihilation device. But more or less, that is how it went down. Okay. Um, but yeah, moving on from the Space is Warped and Time is Bendable meeting, uh, I did want to do a quick shout-out of the the conversation that Varel has with Simone as their – they're leaving that meeting, and, and Varel shares his, his understanding now. He, he feels like he understands what makes the Daigurin Brigade strong now. And and I, I this moment is small, and it, it's really just to emphasize Simone's, like, like will to succeed. But I, I appreciated this as a as an arc moment for Varel. Uh, I feel like this is something that happens pretty organically to his character how his his role as an outsider has kind of always been true even when he's you know a faithful servant of the beastman army like the the one he's the one who talks to our heroes and he's the one who kind of set them on the path that that you know they're on now uh and so the despite that he has kind of always been on the periphery of them he's like a 
a moon caught in their orbit, right? Uh, and and this is what makes him s- special before, and the way that he's special now is so different from that initial, like, you know, uh, uh, it, it's almost like a, um, uh, how do I put this without sounding pretentious? Mm. It's literary, I would say. Like, this is the sort of thing that, that literary characters go for, where, go through, rather, where their uh, initial role is so... Uh, inherently different and and usually in in its you know because writers are like this it's an ironic way right like they start a member of the military of some faction and you know some truths happen and some hard things occur and they and they get spit out the other way like a revolutionary against the same throne or what have you um uh, you know this this moment was small but it stuck out to me uh did you guys feel the same way or not really I felt the same way about some other scenes, but your argument convinced me. I didn't have anything in my notes about that particular moment. Yeah, I, I think putting it there as sort of a, a, a period on virile sentence was, I think that's about the, it, it, you know, it's necessary. You should end yeah. your sentences, but it's not necessarily the the big point. But yeah, it was necessary. Speaking of the big point, I guess we should get to it. Uh, do you want to get to the Tootsie Roll center of this Roshi pop, probably? Uh this feels like the, the, the main thing to discuss in this episode, because now we have all the info. We now have the full picture of Roshu's, not scheme, I wouldn't put it that way, but of, of how Roshu approached this whole entire situation. We 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 didn't have the information that Kenan shares with us about uh, Roshu's uh, reaction after the trial. I, I think we could guess, right, that, that Roshu wasn't having a fun time. I, I believe I, I discussed, you know, look to the eyes, uh, uh, and we, we saw the amount of lines under Roshi's eyes. I said that he has more of those under his eyes than he does on his whole body. Um, uh, but Roshi decides to go visit his his home village. What's it called? Uh, Adai. Adai village. Uh, uh, we can we can recognize it visually, even if it's not as dark as it used to be, uh, because of the big face. We can see the uh, the pizza robot from Code Geass is still there. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, the last time I said this, this confused Steven Hero as well. But I, I swear, the the way its arms are very thin, it looks like the pizza robot from. No, Code no I, see, I see it now. I see it. <laughs> yeah. Just, just when you, it's like a Voldemort instinct when you say Code Geass, I have a reaction to it. <laughs> like, when, oh. like I like the shorthand because we use it often on this show. We talk about like what's literary. Like, we, it's like this genese qua of like this elevates this among other things. Like, we've used literary for a lot of shows. It's like, what shows haven't we used the word literary for? And then I immediately go to. <laughs> Code Geass, <laughs> even though I did appraise its world building at points, and particularly the one show that has no literary elements whatsoever, fucking Gundam Wing. Well, I, I will say, I will say in fairness to uh, Code Geass, uh, even if I maybe agree with you, that one is actually kind of based on literature. At no, least. I know. Yeah. Uh, like, at least, uh, you know, and maybe that says something separate, but uh, our, our podcast about Code Geass will return, uh, uh, you know, next summer. Um, I don't know if that's true, but maybe. Uh, anyway. That actually, blah, blah, blah. There's, there's one line I want to touch on, which I thought was really poignant on Father Magin's part. He says, I'll just read from what I have from the uh, the subtitles real Please quick. Please do. Uh, it's when uh, Roshu goes back to his village. He runs into the Father Magi in there, and he says, It's the strangest thing. This place is hardly full of happy memories for me, and yet it seems to be the anchor of my soul. It must have been hard for you. And I, 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 like, I really felt that line. Like, I, I fucking get that. Like, sometimes that environments and the places that cause us the most anxiety, the most trauma, the most pain are the places that we seek to return to later in life. There's a writer. His name's Marcel Proust. All-time, my favorite writer, full stop. 
and he wrote this like magisterial set of novels called In Search of Lost Time. Talk about pretentious. And it's seven volumes long, and basically he is the narrator, and he is walking us through a fictional version of his life. Um, he starts, say, he's like in his mid, I guess the narrative structure is he's in his mid-50s, he's looking back on his life starting from boyhood and all the way to the present. And that he, he experiences a lot of anxiety throughout those years, especially his early 20s. But when he thinks back to his the most significant moments in his life, it's usually the places that caused him the most pain because those were the most substantive, even though it might seem a little paradoxical that way. It seems that they provide his life with the most meaning, especially how he dealt with those traumas or he, how he didn't deal with those traumas. And like, I really got like Father Magin's statement of like, you know, I'm always drawn to this place. I can never escape it. I thought there was a lot of truth in those words. I definitely want to, and I know this is kind of like, I don't want to, this isn't pressure I'm putting on both of you for this, um, but I definitely want to hear from you guys about this scene because I, I don't know, I I really, I feel like I, I have a good sense of how to like hone in on what I think is the idea, the core sort of like, when you boil water down and you're left over with all the salts and sediment and whatever, like I feel like I'm pretty decent at that when it comes to fiction, but like, I, I can't get a read on this scene. I, I, I don't know exactly. Like, there are aspects of it I totally get, right? Where Roshi was there for one reason, and Father Magin is is maybe detecting it, but is is not going to bring it up. It is going to dance around it, kind of. Or maybe even isn't. Like, I, I sort of detect all of that, but I, I just don't know what to what to take from all of this, necessarily. What do you? How did this scene sit for both of you? Like, Stephen Hero, I can see uh, already this is something that has... Uh, resonating and and you can kind of uh, uh, attach not not attach but like ah yes this resonated with me in this way PMC what about you what what how did you take the scene it felt very generational I think um, it seemed very much like you know and already in the line that Stephen was talking about that that Magen sort of identifies I think with some of what Roshu was was experiencing although even Roshu was experiencing on a greater scale and the other thing I would say too is that I, I think given in in how they react differently to the revelation of the book that the that the book is in Roshu's mind gibberish you know that's their point of view we don't know if that's really true but the point being that uh that Magin kind of just sort of laughs this revelation off and and thinks it's sort of funny and and Roshu kind of won't let it go He's, you know, it, there's a, I think it's like the comment about, um, you know, about how humans evolve and this is, you know, maybe this is just, this revelation helps us evolve and don't you think that's funny? And Roshi's like, ha, no, actually I don't. And, <laughs> and, and I think that shows that at, in that moment that Roshu sort of, I guess, won't forgive himself for his intransigence. You know, he, he is unable to. He's. I mean, that's sort of much of the resolution of Roshu's arc in this episode is his inability to forgive himself for the mistakes that he did make, even in the face of the other things he did right, right. Uh, which is you know what what he he comes to realize. And so I think this scene communicates that state where you know where where an older you know a mentor figure says like, man, this 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 is how this shit rolls sometimes. Like, you know, you can't, you, you have to be able to, to laugh it off. And he, I'm not even good at laughing it off. Look at me. I'm, I keep coming back to this place. <laughs> right. Know? That's a yeah, super he, good does point. Does he live there now? Does he have a timeshare in Adai Village? Or does he like travel there on weekends? That's, that's, those are the questions that need to well, be Well, he asked. doesn't want to advertise it. It's very underground. 
Hey, I um, I don't, I don't want to put this out there because this is so hacky, and uh, uh, I, I haven't taken enough of a, a mean rip off of my bong for this necessarily. But uh, I, I wondered if if uh, Father Magin was there. I, I wondered if if th- this was a a actual physical presence he was speaking to. Uh, or if this was some some aspect of of Hiroshi's personality that we are seeing manifested for the sake of drama, um, you know this is a trick that I, I know I talk about Star Trek a lot in our show, but this is a trick that Star Trek plays a lot, especially in Deep Space Nine. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of Waltz, which is the the episode where uh, poor fucking Cisco gets stuck on a, a planet with Crazy Pants uh, a Ducat, who is uh, not doing well. Uh, and uh, various aspects of Ducat's fraying personality manifest as uh, characters in Deep Space Nine who are, are taking the 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 sort of position of particularly strong feelings that Ducat has. Like for example, like Major Kira appears as someone who's mocking him constantly, and Wayun shows up as his like cruelest part, and and. Uh, uh, Damar, I almost called him Kunar, which is very rude if you know Damar. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, that's very rude if what you know Damar. What was your Damar. name again? Drunkard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Damar is like his, that part of Ducat that he, like that weaselly sort of self-congratulatory part of Ducat, right? Um, and, and I wondered about this with Father Magin here, who is like, a, a a sort of weathered wisdom that that uh, Roshi still can't bring himself to really accept yet. Like it, it, the the uh, possible consequences of his actions, because this is the thing that that Roshi is failing to sort of take in, and and is and it's a acceptable or not acceptable. It's an understandable thing to to have a hard time dealing with. Is that like you know everything turned out okay? Like he definitely things could have been the most awful. Like the moon was going to kill everyone. <laughs> like it was not going to be good. And like and and you can see how you can definitely see where he is driven to this. And especially the character that that we've been with as long as we've had. Um, and I think there's also and, and I don't think the show is necessarily equipped to deal with it. Or and I I definitely don't think Simone is equipped to deal with it. Uh. You know, the angle we've discussed where there's an aspect of this that is, like, personal, that is ego-based for him. We, we talked about, or at least I did, at great length, that how the, the cord drill, wearing the cord drill is a sort of statement, a visual statement, in my opinion, about part of this being a sort of, like, yes, my way was correct. Um, and, and the show can't really be about that in this moment because it's kind of, it, it can't, we've kind of moved on from that story a little bit. In a way, like the the that sort of beat has been resolved by the cordial returning to Simone in its way, um, and Simone in in his, in his way is not concerned about it. Like he seemed to understand even before we could see it when he's broken out of jail at the end of the Yoko episode that he, he's not. His first thought wasn't like I'm I'm going to shoot Roshi just like I shot Viral just now. Bang 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 bang. You know, <laughs> but like. Um, it, it's, it's instead like we need to get out into space and, and save all of our friends. Um, and so it, this, this beat for, for Roshiu to instead take it upon himself, like, okay, well, I did this bad shit. Uh, even if nothing bad actually happened, uh, I still did. I, I fully intended to go through with the bad shit. Like I would have definitely watched the moon crash into the earth and flown away on the spaceship. And like, 
there is a I, I don't know me Ignis Maddox. I don't know how one deals with that, right? Like, can you imagine? Like to to have to continue to move on from that is is you know and and you, the thing is you don't really even have people with the capacity around you to really dig into that right can you imagine being Roshiu and like let's just say you called fucking Dayaka out and it's like hey man do you want to go get some drinks and you and you're out with drinks with Dayaka and you're trying to talk about like hey hey man like I you know it was really really rough when I thought I was going to kill the vast majority of the human race. And only save like I don't know two hundred thousand, one hundred and eighty. What right? That was the number. Um, it, like, do you think Dayaka has the emotional? Like, definitely he would empathize. But do you think he would really be able to talk to Roshiu about it, Dayaka, who is maybe the most chill? No, yeah, I'd not say no, right? Yeah, yeah, not really, right? Like, it's it's Roshiu. We talked about, and I I, I kind of brought this up. Um, how when it, when it comes to folks who have like the the emotional capacity for for being concerned with consequences like this sometimes you just don't have like a peer right like and poor Roshu just doesn't he doesn't have a peer who who considers consequences in the degree that he does right like you know simone i love him and i think he's great in this episode and i think his speech the speech that he says to to Roshu to save him from his stupor uh, it is like a good one. Like that was one I was ready to to be critical of, right? I, I think there is when it comes to um, uh, characters who hit rock bottom like this, there is a a like a tendency to romanticize the saving of the characters in a way that is like almost flippant, right? To the condition of being suicidal, I would say. And I was worried about that. I, I was worried about watching a character who I like, Simone. You know, uh. uh uh, uh, assault someone who is in like a a really bad place, right? And for me to feel like this sucks, <laughs> like you know, in the context of the battle that of of um uh the 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 volcano for the the Daigunzen, uh Kamina's punch to Simone felt like a manifestation of their relationship. Do you, do you think that's fair to say, or do you, do you do you think I'm I'm drawing hairs to separate? some punch one punch that i think is fine and one punch that i was maybe iffy on no i could i could definitely see being uneasy about you know simone decking roshu expect he's going he's going through extreme trauma he's on the precipice of suicide and then i could understand you know wanting to physically assault someone i guess to save their life but just imagine if someone's working through some shit like at a uh, therapy session imagine if a therapist just suddenly got up and like punched <laughs> you i mean that, that valid concern I mean, like, like that episode here, of Sopranos when Lorraine Braco just punches James Gandolfini right in the face. <laughs> All I would say is that um, I, I am I, I recognize the dramatic beat of it, right? Like that's that's where I'm I'm able to separate my. There's a part of me that's like, yes, do not punch a suicidal person in the face. <laughs> like most times, like I'm gonna go ahead and say. Six out of ten times, do not punch a suicidal person in the face. And that's that, probably still too that's, many. <laughs> that's a good number. Rose yeah. should be proud because you quantified that number very precisely. <laughs> you stick to those numbers. But my, my point is that um, there was a, uh, a, a beat for me where I was concerned about this not working. I, I think there is a, um, a PMC... Mm-hmm. You are recently experiencing and living a Steven Universe life. Um, and, uh, Steven Universe, uh, I, I think, uh, you and I are both fans of, I would describe myself as a fan and I'd say you generally enjoy Steven Universe. Yep. 
Um, I, the thing that can happen with Steven Universe, and I am sympathetic, even though I mostly disagree, is that the 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 core philosophy of Steven Universe being so wholesome can sometimes lead to conclusions that I think we have been conditioned as a culture to find unsatisfactory as a, con- a conclusion to a story. Uh, and, and sometimes what I mean by that specifically is that Steven is able to solve a problem with wholesomeness, whether it's through forgiveness, whether it's through patience, whether it's through, you know, some other means that probably wouldn't solve a problem in quote unquote real life. This is a, a conscious choice that the, the narrative is taking because of the kind of work it is. I, I think that's fair to say. I know you're not done with Steven Universe, but like, uh, has the cluster happened? Yeah, yeah. So we're, right now, my current watch, uh, we're at the end of uh, – we're closing in on the end of season three, so. Yeah, so, like, there are certain beats that people ran ha- had some friction with, and, and it was because they were kind of concluded with the typical sort of Steven – not typical, I don't want to even put it like that, but, like, the idea is necessarily that this is a, a, a work of fiction and – things that that the ideas that matter should be effective is, is something that this show is not afraid to indulge in I, I think that's also fair to say right like think about uh, uh paradot right paradot explicitly an antagonistic character at the end of season one uh, by by season two our relationship to paradot has completely changed in in a way that is i think most fans find acceptable uh you know uh Anyway, the point I'm getting to here when it comes to uh, 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 that sort of thing is that, that that sort of wholesomeness, that sort of like fiction indulging in its own ideas because it's fiction, uh, that can be tough to walk and to maintain the integrity of your piece, right? Um, what is a good example of this that I can talk about that isn't a huge spoiler? Hmm. 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 I don't know if I can. Hmm. I guess I'll put this away. Maybe maybe I will. So I, I, I had a specific example in mind that was Hunter Hunter specific, and it's the end of the show. And if neither of you care, I could go into it and why I think it's a good example of what I'm talking about. But you I know mean, what? I, I'm I'm okay with it, but you know, it's Yeah, you know, you know I don't fucking care. Alright, so um at the end of Hunter Hunter, one of the main characters finds themselves in a state where they will die. Um, and the way that they solve this is through a deus ex machina. Uh, I'm not afraid to call it that, uh, because that's what it is, because it's just a narrative idea. It is a tool that, uh, that the author used in a particular way. And in my head, it is completely fine. I think they earned it. I think there was, uh, some rules set up for how it would work so that it wasn't just a, a magic fix it. They set it up, they paid it off, it, it works. A lot of people don't like it. A lot of people feel like it, it's just sort of like uh, a magic wand over the problem. I, I, there's a bunch of reasons why I don't think that's the case, but I, I think it's a good example. Uh, without going into the specifics, it would be very hard to do without mm, yeah, explaining yeah. everything. But I think there are certain kinds of ideas that we have been sort of taught, not taught, because there, there's a sort of... Uh, uh, active uh agency there when i say taught that i'm not trying to communicate i i more mean that that through osmosis we've sort of learned to sort of reject certain kinds of narratives right like and the idea that a a pure emotion 
like a, a pure feeling or or a a a sense of uh you know just just because ah we want it so bad or or because we've earned it sometimes those can clang right sometimes that comes off as like cheap that we've cut corners to get to what we want to do um and and i think that it, it is more of a individual case sort of scenario and I, i'm going to talk about this idea again when we finish Gurn the gone because i think Gurn the gone this is an idea that Gurn the gone is purposefully playing with um but i i think that the reason i bring up steven universe and the the wholesomeness of steven universe and and how that doesn't work for some people uh i i was concerned about that sort of solution being offered for the suicidal tendencies and that just clanging right because there is a there's a certain emotionality that Gurn the Gone is an expert at dealing with. And I was concerned about this being too real. Um, and, uh, and like, and for me, I actually, I came away with Simone's speeches pretty good. I actually thought it was, it was a good example of Simone, you know, Stephen Hero has been pretty careful to, uh, call out Steve, uh, fuck Simone's, uh, uh empathy as being a, a particular strong suit of his, what what did you guys think of uh, Simone's pep speech to Roshiu? Obviously, it, it, it's a callback to the one that happened at the the Battle of Daigunzen. But uh, other than that, what what are your thoughts? I mean, I, I think so. Uh, Simone did the most important thing that he needed to do, which was uh, you know, and I think especially given the, the context and differing this context between what happened previously, which was that I think in order to have a, a you know a, a maybe understandable or, or believable sort of uh, turnaround here, you had to acknowledge why Roshu was feeling the way he he felt. And I think Simone does that in a way that maybe Kamina doesn't. I mean, Kamina was uh, surprisingly empathetic at times, but I think that's something Simone is even better at. And I think it, it, it you can tell it in the difference between this scene and the scene that it references earlier in the show. Yeah, and one thing I really do like about the speech is it really touches on the, like... I don't know, like the major moral, uh, or maybe the th- three major guiding moral truths that like Gurren Lagann as a thematic work like puts forth. So I'm going to lecture you for a minute just because according to Gurren Lagann, that's what teachers do. So I'm going to lecture you. I gave a stage lecture. But it, it definitely tells you, believe in yourself, for you are special and deserving of love. You got to fight for what you believe in, even though the odds might seem daunting. And it's okay to make mistakes. And don't worry if you do. You always have a good friend around who will lead a helping hand or a clenched fist in order to set you in the right direction. Which I was nice. It was a nice, um, like, moral overview of what the show has been like pushing us towards. Yeah, I I, I agree entirely with uh, PMC's take about the thoroughness of what it, it addresses, and and Stevens about the sincerity of it. I think overall it works in a way that I. I was surprised that I didn't trust the show more to deliver, but I think the it was the I guess the Yoko episode that made me side eye the show's writing right now. You know, um, you, you brought up a good point that was now that I'm thinking about this show really does live and breathe on callbacks, especially like the second half of the show calling back to the first half. It's usually a callback to Kamina and how one of the characters reflects his either his ideology or his like I don't know posture, and you know it's 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 like poetry; it rhymes. Sometimes it could be a bit excessive, and like the punch, we might not have needed that. Like we we got we get the connections between like the first half of the show and the second half. Maybe Simone could have done something else. Not to say that's not necessarily effective, but there's definitely other routes they could have gone to. I I feel like I I wouldn't necessarily call it 
uh, callbacks as much as I would say they are are making. I mean, they are callbacks. What I'm about to say is the definition of a callback, but they are uh, intentionally making visual parallels in order, I think, to demonstrate the exponential escalation that we're seeing. Right. Like they are making these visual parallels. Yes, but it's because they want your brain to appreciate, like, look how far we've come. You know, it's not necessarily like, ah, uh, do you remember this? That makes you feel good, right? Release that dopamine, you, you fucking clown. As much as it's like, you know, uh, it, there is a, a poetry to watching um, the shot of the, the grave of Kamina, and then we see um, Simone's back, right? Like, it's not just that the, the symbol is on his new fucking badass uh, uh, space coat. Uh, and it's not just that the symbol is communist symbol. It's the fact that it's on Simone's back of all things, right? Like it's all of these things compounding and the, the parallelism, the, the visual callbacks, the, the callbacks in the text itself, it all uh, adds together into this, this uh, emotional, I was going to say totality, but that's so, that's so bad. That's like saying something's a meditation on something. I hate saying that. Like it, it turns into this, this wonderful, uh, uh, like, Meditation Total. on life, yeah. Fucking it's, stop it. It's no, a, it's, it's a love letter to classic <laughs> mecha shows. Love it's, letters it's, one well, I hate. It's well it, it is that, but the thing that I really want to stress, and it's something that's gonna come up more, is that we they have successfully in a very short time created a a what feels like a long term war story. Something that, that feels like the sort of thing that people try to accomplish in fucking 19 book long fantasy type stories in like 27 episodes right where we have histories we have figures who die and become myths you know we we have uh, uh nations we have uh, politics we have you know power structures it's they've really created something complex with really simple tools and and you know like that's not to say that they, there wasn't a ton of hard work but th- th- what we have is like a, a, a sort of uh complex uh, and and inspirational piece that also stars Daffy Duck, <laughs> like sometimes, like and, and that's what's crazy about Gurren Lagann. We're not even done with the show yet, as much as th- that's kind of where my head is at when I think about the start of this episode and Coco Jisan. Happy birthday to Coco yesterday, by the way. Uh, 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 ironing something, and then uh, at the end of the episode, we see Coco Jisan with an, an enormous fucking backpack or whatever. And he reveals the 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 Gurn, the Digrendon flag, and and it means something in in the moment. Like I can't speak for everybody. Like this particular part of Gurn Lagan has me completely like around its fingertip. Like I'm completely stuck in it emotionally. I'm also uh, a frankly a, a sobbing, crying mess throughout. Like especially these next. Oh man, next week's gonna be bad, y'all. Like the next two episodes are incredibly brutal i might not be on like pmc might not be able to include my audio track just kind of just like, but anyway i'll echo those thoughts too because this these two episodes in particular really tugged on my heartstrings like common is death for example like i knew about it like even back in 2007 2008 when i first watched girl Lagon, i knew because it was in the cultural osmosis so i knew what was happening and i even though I was affected emotionally, it was such a commercial construct that it really didn't hit me. Like, I wasn't actually welling up with tears, but I was feeling emotions. Here, the cocoa flag, I could barely hold back. And a few, and even, like, Magian's thing, you did a fine job. Not everyone could have done what you did. And I was, Same. And I was real—I'm still pretty—I mean, I've, I've been— uh, 
I was very critical originally of Roshu. Like, even though I had the best intentions in mind, like I wanted to try him as a war criminal. But even this line <laughs> really, like, I don't know. I felt the weight. Like, what's this? What's the Cowie Bebop? You got that? You're going to carry that weight? I, I carried that weight in a meaningful yes. way. Can we talk about the weight created by two moons in uh, orbit simultaneously? <laughs> Just ask. No, for actually, a we can't. We definitely 100% can't. But instead of talking about that weight. Instead, let's talk about something I really, really liked. Um, we're, we're, we're just about done with the, the Roshi arc, but I, I wanted to cap it off with these two ideas. First is that I think that the final note that he left for Keenan in his, like, oh, this is what our plans are for the next moving forward, is, is proof that he learned the correct lesson from all this. And not only that, but... Uh, I think it's telling that the lesson he learned is the thing that PMC has been shouting out since the time skip, which is that Roshi failed to highlight and and uh, believe in the the work of the disparate folks around him, right? Because that's what he told Kinon to do, right? Um, and the other thing I wanted to bring up is the the final beat of the uh, the Roshi arc is like I, I would call it cutesy, but I, I also like it. Um, there, you know, obviously there's a sort of like cute young adult flirtatiousness about, uh, you know, Kinon's weight. Uh, it, it sucks that this is like a, like a thing for the feminine character in particular to be dealing with. But I also, I liked his line, like Roshi's line about like, I, I want to feel the weight of a single human being is, is like, it sucks that he's not talking about Kinon right now, that he's still talking about his bullshit right now. But there was a, there was a poetry to that that I appreciated. I, I really liked the idea of like, he was soothed by the, the unassailable presence of the human that's literally on top of him right now. Like that, that, that idea that he couldn't deny the humanity of that one person because of the actual physical weight. I just thought that was good. It, it's it's a nice beat for something that didn't need to be like the the sort of marker of oh I've you know I've come out of the tunnel of my absolute despair like and and this is part of how I'm doing it. It's a very Roshiu moment and it's it's something that feels more like human and honest at the end of this guy character's journey. I, I you know this was something that I. I worked in this last moment for me when it comes to uh, the end of this episode. No, I definitely agree, too. Like, I compared uh, Roshu to, like, a little Stalin before, and there's, like, an alleged, <laughs> alleged Stalin quote where he says, uh, you know, you've heard this before. You've seen this on a Call of Duty credit scene before. Uh, the death of a single person is a tragedy. The death of a million is a statistic. And, like, Roshu's been, like, concerned with the imagined needs of the many, and now he can actually focus on, like, the very real needs of a single person and that connection. Like, the line on its face value is, like, a little clumsy, but I liked its presence there. Like, it's the, the cap Roshu's journey. Oh, sure. An editor could, could be taken to this line and make it, like, good, like, better. But It's I, funny, because when we were talking about, like, the criticisms lodged at, like, Japanese media in particular or Final Fantasy VII Remake in, like, specifically, like, it's lines kind of like that, that kind of, if not in the hands of a, a good translator or a good localizer, can come across as kind of clumsy in context. Well, this is kind of what I mean, though, is that, like, the line is good. The idea behind it is good. It's oh, just yeah, that totally. It, it can be difficult to just take the, the Japanese, the original language there, and, and turn it into English and for it to not come off as clumsy. Like, that, it takes a wizard, right? And, and it sometimes takes the right text. Like, that's why something like Cowboy Bebop works so well. Like, Cowboy Bebop lends itself to, anyway, different podcast. Um, <laughs> but um, now we are here. We got our flag. We got our spaceship. 
we got our cool clothes, except for some people. Um, <laughs> listen, I'm not even talking about Yoko. Uh, I, I, I'm going to go on the record here and say of Yoko's myriad outfits, I, I kind of don't mind her space one. It's insane, obviously. But the fact that, like, so much of her ass is hanging out the back of it, like, it's so comical. It's hard for me to be mad at it. Like, obviously, it's bad, but, like, it, it's so stupid, it's hard for me to be mad at it. Like, I'm never – this is, again, I'm never going to blame anybody for looking at this and being like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> but, like, My I wife, know. every time she walks in <laughs> – when yeah, for sure. For real. Sorry, are, definitely... you, are you looking for Yoko's vagina bones again? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Here and they she, are. She'll say things like that too. Right. And again, like, <laughs> like what it, the fuck is this? She's like even, fa- she even says that like when the cloud and Tifa scenes like, yo, this is not as nearly as sexualized as some of the other things that you constantly walk in when I'm watching. Oh, I mean, wh- I mean, th- that's the thing. Like, I, it's so it's so crazy to remember that there was like an outroar about Tifa's design in Final Fantasy VII because, like, really, if when you see her in the game, like, they really didn't. I she know. has enormous breasts still, like, it's, like uh, ridiculous. As I told her, it's super toned down. Yeah, it really is. But like again, this is people who are who are not understanding that there were choices made because of the limitations of the hardware. Like Eris's dress was in three segments and like people aren't mad that they're not still doing that shit. Um anyway, a different podcast yet again. <laughs> um but the the no, Yoko's outfit, I, I was actually referring to Viral. I, I don't know what Viral's going for with his. Uh, that that blue and yellow thing. I'm not sure. I'm really the the outfit. I mean, putting aside the you know commercial sexualization thing, the the one that gets me the most honestly is is uh, Simone's and specifically whatever is going on around Simone's torso. Like he's doing some kind of like oh the belts. Like, yeah, like it's too many belts. You know, just <laughs> too many belts will spoil the the soup. It's like that Simone. Final Fantasy Tactics A2 uh, character, right? Too many belts? What was it? Remember well, that, I mean, the mean? official Final Fantasy uh, Too Many Belts sponsor is Lulu because she wears a dress of belts. Yes. Um, there is actually a, a fun character in uh, Tetsuya Takahashi's Xenoblade Chronicles 2, the, the Chronicles of Horniness, uh, uh, named Zeke. And uh, Zeke is a character who's... Uh, uh, inspiration will become immediately clear when I link this picture in Mechanation's chat. Uh, but Zeke also has an interesting belt situation going. But the thing I would say about Simone's design is that it, it's clearly inspired by your Captain Harlocks, your your you know your Legend of Galactic Heroes sort mm-hmm. of, of, yeah. of deal. So you know, I, I agree that they've got some Kingdom Hearts in there, <laughs> and that's some weird marshmallow fluff on, on that otherwise interesting sort of situation. But I'm into it. Um, but, uh, I believe that finishes 23. Uh, yeah. any final thoughts before we move on to the white castle that I see that is, um, breaking out of space time and entering my home? I think the only thing I'll say going into, into the white castle is that, uh, I, we talked a bit before structurally about how this episode uses the text for Simone because it uses a line of Simone's to title the episode but while a lot of the content is focused on tying up Roshu's arc. Uh, there is a musical concept called Elision, E-L-I-S-I-O-N, or you can also hear it sometimes said alighting, you know, to elide one phrase into another. And I think this sort of Elision works very well for uh, Goran Lagan in terms of keeping things moving, which is certainly something that the show does. Yeah, absolutely. I actually think, uh, you know, uh, we fin- not we finished the, the conversation regarding 
uh, the episode. I think the the choice to to move on from Roshu quotes to Simone quotes, we could probably take as a, as a signaling of like the change in tone, right? Like we're we're moving on to permanent space opera mode now i'm also mad that all the official art for zeke he is covering his his uh midriff which is where he has literally oh, a pile of belts. All the belts are hidden yeah it's it's all belts just like where exactly where his arms are you Oops, can see there's belts. one like yeah it's ridiculous he is very much the um the bart of the game and it's incredible uh anyway yeah that's that'll do it for uh uh hashtag laser taser wait no um, oh no that'll, <laughs> yeah right that'll do it for for 23 let's go this is our final battle but I'll, that'll take us cleanly into 24 once we defeat this white castle that's yeah. in my living room this is our final white castle that's right dilly dally shilly shally oh fuck <laughs> i was prepping that like, for a minute Ah, there's a giant naked woman floating in space! Idiot. What are you talking about? <gasps> Foolish people of the spiral. Who's there? Anti-spiral. That's who that is? Alright, so, uh, audience, this has never happened before, and I apologize for this, but I, I lost the I lost the summary I made for 24. I, I don't know what happened to it. I will never forget this summary, this yeah, episode. Exactly. <laughs> I woke up this morning. It's like, God damn it. He better not forget the episode 24 summer. And here we are. <laughs> so instead, we're going to get the first paragraph of my notes from episode 24. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the first paragraph of my novel here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to read you... the first verse of the Bible. Wait, wait till, wait. Till, oh my goodness. Uh, wait till we get to uh, G Gundam before I'm reading my own personal novel uh, on, on the Mechanician's air. Uh, no, and I'm not going to read this Horatio Hornblower quote. No, instead, I, I'm going to read uh, this paragraph here. As our forces prepare for battle, they marvel at the strength of their bonds. It will bring them to Simone's dearest, and it will give them all of their power. Sealed by the words of Simone, they barrel onward into the unknown, as far as it takes. This is the Digrendon's final fight. I, you know, I, I think I accidentally nailed it <laughs> in that paragraph. Like, that's more or less, you know, obviously I didn't talk about anything that happened, um, but there's kind of a lot that happens. Uh, there's a lot that, that happens that uh, I was afraid would make PMC furious uh, because uh, it is, uh, there's a lot of storytelling via implication in this episode. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I just so there's no guessing, I just meant about the, um, space iteration of all the mechs, which are are Ark Gurn Lagan sized, uh, and you know this was this happened off screen, and I and I uh, you know for me I'm like oh yeah I forgot that this happened, and then I went ooh <laughs> yeah I mean <laughs> the thing is the good news is that they all look pretty cool, which is yes. and it's like the thing the thing I would also say though is that the the one of the things they highlight about them besides you know looking nice is that they also kind of highlight that silly cleverness of the the small mech piloting the big mech which yes. makes it fun in a way that is specific to Gurren Lagan rather than just being oh yeah everyone else can do the same thing too right it's like oh while while, while you were doing this we all got our limiters removed off screen you know <laughs> like you know you're not doing anything for me by by doing that like in fact you you've sort of diminished the whole the whole business of getting bigger to begin with but like the thing that I think soothes it for me again is the focus on what makes it fun for the show Goron Lagan. I just remembered that uh the the hammer becomes like a, a mini boss later and they just never explain it and it's 
<laughs> it's fine. Don't worry. I'm sorry, everyone, that I just went on. Uh, in, yeah, in, welcome in to hashtag LaserTaserPlays Xenogears 2. We, we're doing it again. <laughs> yeah, it's here again. Ignis goes into a Xenogears fugue state number 800 million. Um, but, Stephen, did you have any thoughts about this this idea of the space gunman, the, the you know altered space gunman that we see here? I thought they were cool. I didn't write any particular notes in it of, other than just the, the standard. I, I, I appreciate the constantly evolving sense of scale, which I'll be able to talk a bit more deeply when we hit a plot point later on. Yeah, so we um, we get a, an initial round of uh, uh, it's sort of reestablishing what the core idea is here, right? That that the emotional bond between Simone and Nia, the strength is such that they will be able to use the you know, I've referred to it as blinking. This is a, a term from MOBAs when you move from one space to another very quickly. This, like, warp drive, I guess, if you want to call it that, is is works on uh, the sort of logic that uh, a Tenshimuyo red pinky string of love sort of works on, and that it, it, it removes all physical barriers and allows you to be with the, the person that matters. In this case... Uh, we see them break into what what I will now refer to as a gunbuster space, uh, because of the the colors and the sort of psycho, psychedelia of it all. I don't know if psychedelia is a correct cognate of that word, but I'm going to use it anyway. Yep, that shrug that PMC just gave me—that's exactly how I feel about it. Anything uh, goes. It's podcast time. Yeah, anything goes. It's Gurren Lagann in the last couple episodes time. Um, the uh, uh, the thing that is most striking to me is the the sort of like gallantry of the cathedral terra uh i really enjoy the the image of the our heroes all gathered on the bridge of it just standing heroically as the the warp goes forward and i really like the goof later of when they just try it again and i don't know if you guys caught it but on the second go around everyone has kind of like annoyed faces as they're standing there heroically it's a really really good joke <laughs> my favorite is yoko in particular like obviously she's in the foreground so we can see her boobs but like the 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 way her face her facial expression changes in particular in the second go around when they try to because you know we we warp to this this pocket dimension that the 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 anti-spiral homeworld is supposedly in and we we're confronted with the the image of nia um and uh this image of nia is some kind of the, the idea of this image is somehow blocking the method by which they are using to teleport. Uh, you know, there, you can kind of, in the fictional sense of it, you can kind of I, I understand the idea that, like, uh, the, the, the strikingness of this image is such that it's preventing a true connection. I, I really enjoyed that idea, right? That the anti-spirals have, you know, not only a sense of their, their enemies in a, like, military sense where, you know, they have fucking lasers that come out of their weird constructs right like you know we haven't talked about it yet because they they don't show up quite in this moment but the 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 forces of the anti-spirals appear as like i don't know what you'd call them um abstract art pieces (laughs) you know like with to me at this point and i i forget actually i mean i should check this date they had big bayonetta vibes to me yeah that's actually an interesting call as far as the like angelic creatures in bayonetta go yeah that's a good call Bayonetta's um, got to be later, though. Yeah, no, Bayonetta's later. Yeah, we could definitely call Bayonetta a a, a like a, a sort of um uh like a carrying carrying the torch of Gurren Lagann for sure. sure. Like, um, uh, but um, 
this beat of the the giant Nia be actually preventing them and serving as like a firewall, like an emotional firewall from finding the the uh, home base. This is one of those beats that to me is like a good example of what I was referring to in the like ah yes the we could explain this with specifics, but I, I, the emotional beat is what matters. This is a good example to me of that. Do you, would you guys agree or no? Well, I would agree. And the other thing too, uh, you know, in, in terms of maybe uh, continuing our early, earlier conversation is that like, I'm totally happy when it focuses on the emotional beat. It's just like, it's kind of one of those things where like, how much jargon do you, do you want to involve and how are you going to treat that jargon? I think here, this, this works fine. I think, I think you've explained your teleportation system and the concept of you're going to zoom in on, on the one you love. And guess what? We made a big projection and it screws with that. I'm like, okay, cool. This makes sense. Like I'm, I'm here for it. Steven, how do you think? Do you think this is a beat that, that follows logically? Yeah, there was uh, Anborough has a line which is unintentionally hilarious to me. There's a giant naked lady out there in space, <laughs> and I was thinking uh, Edgar Allan Poe wrote an essay in like 1846 called The Philosophy of Composition. And if you've ever read uh, Edgar Allan Poe's short story, you'll know a lot of what he says to be true. He says a lot of stuff, but one thing he does say is that the most poetic topic in the world is the death of a beautiful or soon to be dead or sickly frail woman. And I was kind of thinking. Imagine if, like, the critics years down the line, or even today, write a book about Gynax, and, like, the connective tissue between Gynax works. It all starts, the, the germination, the seed, all starts from a giant naked lady in space. Because I immediately, <laughs> when I saw Nia in space, I thought about Ray or whatever abstract concept you want to attach to Ray and End of Evangelion, and just, right. you know, scantily clad women in space, you know, per a lot of Gynax shows. Right. When you say Ray, you're, you're talking specifically about the 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 manifestation in end of evangelion i'm not getting specific is that correct yeah yeah tumbling down tumbling down tumbling. yeah oh, yes okay totally agree um actually the... real quick talking about logic i just want another fact because we've been talking a lot about like techno babble too so i just want to make sure i have this straight so nia was created by the spiral king correct yes correct all right so the anti-spirals had no part in her creation correct or incorrect uh vague i would say correct yeah, but then I was thinking, do they have a predetermined knowledge of her, like, I don't know, synthetic systems? Because was So is it purely by chance that they inhabit her body or take over yes. her body? Right? Yes. 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 That, that is, a, that is a, a, a specific plot point that is a, a – or at least that's what – okay. That is what they say to Simone, that it is, it, it is purely ironical that they ended up manifesting within the, the daughter of the Spiral King and specifically his wife. That is supposed to be purely – irony yeah i don't have, even have an issue with it i was just i want to make sure i had that in my head right i i think the and i and i think it was specifically pmc who called this out the the purest antecedent i could think to this idea is of course miang from xenogears i think this is something that could have happened to literally anyone and it just so happened to be nia and and the, so i think the the reason i i bring this up specifically is that the idea that they are analyzing her uh, and that she grew up among humans and they have some kind of useful insight into them. I sort of dig the idea that they're not necessarily looking for what she knows consciously, that there is information that they can gather in, in maybe not an abstract sense, but is, is not what we would traditionally consider knowledge about living with humanity because it's the stuff that you would learn from, I don't know how skin grows or how hair came in this weird way or where this scar came from. Like that, I sort of dug that idea that they're looking for information that goes quote unquote deeper than what she knows. 
And, like, obviously a big part of them, quote-unquote, looking for information is also, like, an emotional ploy, right? Like, we're doing a thing that's hurting your girlfriend. Doesn't that make you fucking sad, you big idiot? Like, it's that, that's, like, the, the, the uh, you know, the emotional beat they're going for here. But I, I sort of dug the idea that, you know, the anti-spirals, we see them to be so incredibly thorough. Right, like they have a, a a completely thorough understanding of of spiral nature. It seems like right because even though their 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 attacks haven't been working because of Simone and the Dicarendon's like sort of exceptional nature, uh, I, I think the 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 part of the the Roshi point is to see how they could work. Right, like what what it would look like for them to work and for them to completely just beat you at every turn. Um, and it's a good thing I mentioned that here because this episode is about getting beat at every turn. Right. This this episode is about how the anti spirals take advantage of the the way that the text has thus far worked, right? Which is that, oh, we've got new shit, we've got our hot gear, we got all our friends, we're gonna go out and we're gonna go win. And we spend the first half of this episode winning in a way that wouldn't be suspicious and unless until people start calling it out, right? Like we start seeing what we would call like a pretty normal like series of glory shots right where everyone gets to like flex a little bit um and it isn't until it's yoko i think who initially points it out right that the yoko is like hey we're uh we're doing real good here and kitan's like yeah it's because we fucking rule we're the fucking best um and yoko's like well that's true but also this seems weird (laughs) um and it's i believe it is uh zorthy who is the first to get caught uh, uh, Zorthy gets uh, caught after the the retreat call is is put into play. I, I appreciate it in this episode. Um, we're starting to see more of the Gunbuster space opera military stuff at play here. I'm sp- I'm speaking specifically of when we're having uh, missiles being fired and interceptors and chaff and and you know craft whose purpose defensively is to like you know handle anything that wasn't handled by the the chat you know did this stuff uh, how does this guy does this work for you guys as a different beat um, like uh, action wise then gorlagon is usually more chaotic than this less like uh, uh, meticulous and planned out this is this is a different kind of level of action than we've gotten from gorlagon before is is the premise of why i'm asking yeah like um instinctually i kind of this is like my default mode i guess for mecha at times i really just like to see i don't know like you know there's that very famous shot in evangelion and you know which is resurrected in shin godzilla when you have like just a bunch of cannons next to each other just firing all at once and i kind of get that for like just many many battleships out in space filing at all cylinders i just really dig that aesthetic yeah, I think the 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 nature of there being more designated roles and uh, you know particular functions, chaff, for example, I think it fits in particular with the turn to space opera, and I think especially is is really what we're we're looking at here because I think when it comes to you know mechs on mechs on the surface just kind of slugging it out, that's that's one thing, but I think here it's a real signal that uh, things are maybe organized in a way that they weren't before. Yeah, I think um, we've we've uh, we've had this weird um, girl, not Carlagon, shit, Gundam Wing, 
uh, is kind of concerned with the differences between mechs on Earth and mechs in space. Like, obviously, that's a concern. And, and like, in its best moments, it thematically ties that into what it's trying to do. Uh, this is me looking at Gun- fuck, Gundam Wing with, with very rose-colored glasses. But I think that's fair to say. Um, otherwise, we haven't covered a lot of stuff that is concerned about the difference between Earth and space, right? But this is a core concern of Gundam, right? I don't think that's unfair to say. Um, uh, and here in Gurren Lagann, I think we're, we are seeing a, a pretty effective demonstration, what, basically, of what PMC is saying, it, it, like, visually, right? Which is that in space, mechs have a different sort of feel than they do on Earth, right? On, on, on Earth with gravity, there's going to be a different state of play than there is in space. Um, and the, the stuff is, we've seen Gynax fucking kill it before, and they're killing it here. Um, and speaking of killing it, uh, the when the anti spirals turn on, uh, there is a a creeping a great creeping sense of dread. Uh, the the sort of abstract nature of the the enemy sh- f- fighters. Uh, I, I think there is there's something brilliant about the the this is a different sort of take than we saw in Gunbuster, right? In Gunbuster, they were equally sort of difficult to really define in a like clear way, right? Where you could see there are some were like motherships and and some were like interceptor craft or something like that but that you wouldn't look at them and say like that one's a tie fighter and that one is a, a tie bomber right um and we can see a sort of similar thing going on here where there's like hand ones and foot ones uh and face ones and many hands uh and and we can see the the there's something that's like you can sense a purpose to it Right, that that goes beyond like function. They they clearly don't care about function because it doesn't look like a functioning thing. Right, it, it looks like a clay. It almost looks like magic out here. Right, it doesn't look like technology. It looks like something that shouldn't work on any level. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, in Pathologic, there is a a a concept that that is like a a structure that exists in reality but is made of its own. Uh, uh, blueprints and is a fictional idea but is also a concrete reality and that sort of lack of uh, mooring to a a physical reality allows the anti-spiral forces to look like these weird like uh, deranged art pieces and when they start becoming threatening that that derangement becomes very obvious right like visually at first they're just weird but then as soon as they turn on they're so like they're so upsetting like there's there's something very visceral and violent about the way that they uh tear off the the Zorthi's godman's arm right like they like they particularly frame it in a way that feels gory and violent you know in a way that you know to compare it to another mech destruction shot like you know the the death scythe being executed is is very very funny in comparison to this right like even though they're going for kind of a similar beat right which is like we're, we we feel sorry for the the quote unquote pain that this machine is in right um that's not me being dismissive please robot overlords don't murder me but the you know uh, the, uh, does that was that just effective for me, or did you guys feel the same way about this particular beat? I mean, I think the thing that was really effective for me is is how much uh, they're you know it, it almost feels like they could have whipped up this fleet just for our heroes because the use of the faces 
is so present in all of their architecture in their you know in their in the gammon in buildings in 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 an iron for you know ironing a uh, a flag or or a phone that to to take that and then to incorporate it into your your big warship and into and into putting them sort of places where they don't belong you know, I mean, I, I've been complaining about the the face on the chest, but having a face in the palm of a hand or on the side of a foot or you know something like that, and then to have it be pr- corrupted and perverted even further when they really turn the dial up at the midpoint of the episode, I think does help with that sense of dread. You know, they the the show it means it when it says that the anti spirals want you to feel absolute despair. Right. Yeah. That this the back half of this episode is a is a real trudge to get through. I don't mean that in a bad way, but just seeing everyone, you know, meet their demise is is harrowing and heartbreaking. But in, in a in a good way, in the fact that it serves a very distinct narrative purpose. Like they really they really set out what they intended to do, and they really nailed that emotional feel on the half on behalf of the show, but also the audience as well. Yeah, I I definitely want to dig in in the way that I feel like the the Roshi stuff is the core of this episode or of the last episode. I think the core of this episode is definitely the bond between the original members of the Daigorendon that we lose in this episode. But before we really dig into that, I want to call out a particular detail that we learn here that that fills out. This is I, I called it in my rubric a, a a a post facto filling out of information that that learning that. Uh, spiral power is most effectively channeled in a humanoid form, which is why m- these the all these anti-spiral machines, not the machines made by anti-spirals, but anti-anti-spiral machines. I just don't like calling them that because that gives me a Super Saiyan God, Super Saiyan feel that that makes me cringe. But uh, the the um, weapons of our heroes, uh, the reason they all have faces like that it is because channeling spiral power is best done with a humanoid form. Now. This is <laughs> this is them filling it out after the fact, but it's it's a sort of detail that that makes me smile. It works for me. I I understand why this is something that will make people some people roll their eyes, but this is some I've just really appreciated this sort of idea. Like obviously we saw the Cathedral Terra and we we were like, mm, that's gonna be a big zom one day. But you know the the, the it's still it, interesting to see that there was a. Someone came up with a rationalization, and I just appreciated that rationalization. Um, you know, uh, we we spend a couple of, of beats in the episode re-examining the the bond between the core members of the Digrandon, and uh, you know, if you're the sort of person who's like on the lookout for like narrative beats as a structure, like if you're someone who can't help but see like the bones of a thing, you you sit there and you go, uh oh, <laughs> uh oh, red flags. <laughs> These characters love each other and they're sharing their bonds. Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. um, the kiss of death, like earlier yeah. with the uh, saying goodbye to your niece and promising to come back with stories of heroism and adventure. Oh, oh, I didn't want to talk about that. I was like, oh no, oh no, God, that's so rough. I can't believe they took the time to show us this. This show is so fucking good. Ah, but anyway, um, uh, the uh, these beats and the way that. Uh, so, Irak, Zorthi, Kiro, Jorgen, Balimbo, Makin, the thing about these guys is that, um, you know, we, we talked about how it, it, it was difficult sometimes to remember everybody's names, uh, and, and, like, they're very much, in a lot of ways, one-off, like, characters who are informed more by their 
like uh, you know informed attributes by and signifiers rather than actual character beats that we get to see them engage with. Other than Jorgen and Belimbo, who have the same character beat of being brothers and dumb, right? Um, or lovers? I don't actually know. But anyway, um, uh, I think this the, the for me the reason I remember these characters and their names, even though I fucked it up a lot throughout the show, uh, is because of these beats of of how we. We lose them in these heroic moments, and there are, are you know, there's a cynical take about how these beats where we lose them are very manipulative, right? And they're they're hugely romantic, like overtures for these characters that, you know, didn't get a whole lot of spotlight beforehand. But there's something, you know, I, I there's something about how long they've been here and how consistently they show up, even if it's for like half seconds, where I I feel like their loss is acutely felt there's a, there's a vacuum where they're all going to and and obviously some more than others right like I, you know i don't want to be i don't want to be mean uh, but like I, I have less feelings for irax zorthian kiddo than i do jorgen belinbo and you know for me the cruelest knife twist in this is is maken Maken, who, you know, who's, for me, I, I like, there's so much that I bring to the reaction of Leite, who has a, you know, we've, we've established that the spiral power has this sort of, like, force connection that it, it, it seems to impart in people. Like, I, I'm fine with confusing that narrative trope with that being a spiral power thing. Like, obviously, that's not clearly explicitly established here, and, like, this is a fairly well-known, like, narrative trope of you know, being somewhat spiritually aware when something drastic happens to a loved one. Um, but the way that Leite carries on her work is it, like, it reads very honest to me. Like there's a very real sort of like, that's how she would, you know, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Process, process this, 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 this news, this, this mournful information, but Makin to me, and uh, the way that the, the this crew, who've been with us since the beginning, and have, it, despite being jokes, have felt so like invincible. I feel like losing them like this really makes the the stakes very real, and not in a fake sort of like uh, the new villains are here, so we're going to kill all of our previous cast to show how serious they are. Like this is something that gets done in comic books a lot. This feels very earned to me. Um, and especially that they, it was almost all done in the service of like, like Jorgen and Belimbos is my favorite because that one is in particular a sort of like for, for the sake of the next generation sort of situation because of them saving, uh, Gimme and Dari in, in specific. Um, the, did this, did this work for you as a whole for, for you guys? Even here, I think you kind of touched on it a little bit how, how it did work for you, but PMC, did, did you find this effective or were you like, oh, I, I see what y'all are doing? I mean, I, I think it worked for me, and I think the reason is because here, when it comes to... And this is a topic that came up during the Roshu arc, which was sort of like, what was the, the meaning of Kamina's death And you know, as, as we go forward in this war drama? And the the, the failure that Roshu had was thinking that... Because I, I think going into this, uh, a, a cynical person who wasn't picking up on what Goran Lagan was putting down might see, ah, yes... We're going to throw some people under the bus, and that's going to motivate our hero to succeed and you know overcome blah blah, blah whatever. But I think what makes this different and what makes it uh, effective for me is that the, um, the you know these these are these are characters who are who are committed to the cause, and you know and and this is this is how things 
unfold. But they're still they're still committed. It's not you know there is no commander who said, "All right, guys, things are going poorly. We're just going to sack a bunch of units." You know, this is the the brigade going all out, and the stakes are really high. This is you know <laughs> this is not their plan. The plan was not to die to make someone powerful. The, the 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 reality is that things are going poorly. Right. Yeah, we often talk about how, like, Gurren Lagann as a show emphasizes collective action. And I really did appreciate how in the back half of this episode, we really take the time. Number one, last episode, we named these characters. I know most of them have been, all of them have been named before, but most of the audience has probably forgotten many of their names. So I'm glad, we, you know, we take the time to address each of these individuals going off into space. And then... At the end of this episode, we take the time to see their heroic deeds firsthand and give those deeds the time of day. They're not an afterthought. It's a crucial portion of this episode, which I thought was really appropriate and also really meaningful. There's one I do want to highlight. One that, like, I have no attachment to Zorthy. Like, Machin hit me the hardest by far. But when Zorthy perishes, he says, I have come a long way, haven't I? And I thought, like, that he really hit the proverbial nail on the head, like, unknowingly on his part. Like, this is one of the reasons, like, encapsulated in a line, this is one of the reasons why I dig Gurren Lagann as much as I do. It's like when you reach the top of a hiking trail, let's say. Um, You spend the better part of a day climbing through rough terrain over, you know, on steep inclines, over fallen tree trunks, and you finally make it to the top of that precipice. And then you survey the newly opened up world and you feel an innate sense of satisfaction. Maybe a little – it might be a little terrifying, but you feel satisfied at the progress you've made. And I think that is why, like distilled to its essence, why I personally really like Gurren Lagann is that feeling of satisfaction to see how far you've come. So that's why like the constant need to – the constant need for progression for me is integral when we're talking about this show. Like like I really did like the scene last episode too with Father Magin. Whether or not he was there or not, I, the scene, because it, the fact that we're back in Adai Village just shows how far we've come. And I thought Zorthy's line was really appropriate. I completely agree. That's a super good point. I actually really enjoy the idea of his final moments being in consideration of not even necessarily that he was ashamed of the fact that he couldn't finish it with everybody else as much as it's he was appreciative of like man we made it up here i'm in space <laughs> you know like like motherfucker i've never been to space <laughs> um but um it's 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 a really small not even small it's kind of huge in its way but it's it's one of those beats that you wouldn't expect to find watching Gordon Lagan in the first half of the show. Like there's there are parts in the first half of the show that will surprise you with its like vulnerable humanity. Like obviously episode 8 and the grief arc is is a huge sort of indicator in that, but in in this second half there's a lot more mature uh, uh emotional beats that I think are are difficult and and will continue to be difficult moving forward that are unfortunately kind of offbeat by uh uh Keaton's eyes turning into boobs as he sees Yoko's new outfit, but you know, I digress. Uh, I, I promised myself I wouldn't talk too much about the the visuals here, um, you know, because I I will say that we we when we see Yoko in space combat, we will see more of the the physics upon her than we did previously. I, I know I called that out in the last episode, but I don't know if there's much to say in this case. It feels more like this time they were trying to 
represent what the physics of her outfit would be in those situations rather than, you know, steal dignity from her in the same ways I was accusing last time. I don't know. Mostly I just don't feel like it's worth getting into. Um, uh, There is a sort of uh, interesting beat I wanted to talk about here that isn't about what we've discussed and it's when we hear the voice of the anti-spirals for the first time so this episode introduces the idea that the anti-spirals have a identity beyond the being that or beyond nia i will say um and this being when they speak uh lord genome's head recognizes them um and in the sub i can't speak to the dub's performance i've never watched the dub this far in um the sub's performance is such that he 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 damn near growls in a way that is more emotive than he has been since he's become a computer, uh, and I really appreciated it because it's not it's not something the the anime has this really bad habit of when it, it, when someone is characterized the text will stop and like say the characterization out loud so that you can't possibly miss it <laughs> and like sometimes this is good and sometimes this is bad in JoJo's Bizarre Adventure it's hilarious right like uh, in in early parts of it it is like almost a feature right um but in in this moment i was surprised at this sort of subtle characterization with lord genome and i appreciated it this is a a, a being they recognize um we still haven't seen i was surprised we didn't see the anti spiral here uh uh but um i appreciated the small moment this was what i was referring to earlier when i was uh interested in lord genome's characterization moving forward this is uh, uh a being who is like chill with being a computer uh, and we haven't really seen in many instances where he was, you know, uh, feeling a thing towards someone. Uh, the, the most direct we've seen that is when he was having fun beating up Simone uh, in the, the first half of the show. And then here now he's he's growling at the reveal of this this figure, you know, that we can't see. But it, according to him, exists all around them. The universe themselves is their foe. So during all this. Uh, Simone can't be out there helping folks in the battle in space because he is he is in uh, he is inside of a mech which is inside of a smaller mech or you know is inside of a yet another mech uh, in a sequence I really enjoy where we zoom into the Ark Gurren that's inside and it's like inside the Cathedral Terra and then we zoom into the Gurren Lagan which is inside the Ark Gurren and then we zoom in to Simone and it's just like Simone. <laughs> Remember the episode thought... of The Office with Michael Scott when he was making the uh, commercial for Dunder Mifflin? Like the very artistic commercial like that runs like 13 minutes, what, what it should have been like 30 <laughs> seconds. And it's yes. just like the song, starting with like the paper and then the paper company and then zooming out into the world. That That's that trope done poorly, but for comedic effect in The Office. But I think the Gurren Lagan is a world where that trope, that, that, that technique, I should say, like works. It thrives on that. Yeah, I think this is also used to great effect in Shin Godzilla, to reference something mm, we've talked yeah. about previously, yeah. Um, uh, but Simone has been charging charging up his, his spiral power. Uh, I really appreciate the the shot in when he is finished, after we, we get the episode quote where I will never forget this minute, this second, uh, where we see Viral kind of in a darker room in the cockpit. Uh, you know, I previously shouted out how he cannot produce uh, spiral power. Uh, and this is something that I think is going to come up in the next episode is something that he, he regrets that he cannot contribute to uh, this dumping of spiral energy that's required in order to transform the Cathedral Terra. Because right as they think they're going to be able to do it, um, 
how how would you describe this? They 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 find an ocean in space. They 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 are dunked into the sea. <laughs> um, they find There's a an sea ocean. change. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Unexpected sea change, uh, and uh, they are they are dunked into some kind of alternate space within space. Uh, and that kind of puts us at the end of our episode. It feels like the the space is draining their energy somehow, or at least that's the implication uh, that the whatever was completed in this final beat was undone by the space ocean. Uh, were there any other beats you guys wanted to hit? One thing I so this ties into both episodes, but just something about the anti sprawls during that uh, the the jargon section from from twenty three, and this kind of comes up in twenty four when we hear from the anti sprawls. Uh, we got to this idea that the you know the anti spirals are once spirals, but but then they became centrists who believe that better things aren't possible. Right, and that's something that I just wanted to to highlight because it it creates a parallelism between like in in sort of each of our each time someone who become each time someone is an antagonist, it's because they believe that better things aren't possible. I feel like is a is a running theme. You can look at that Lord Genome, Roshu, you know who's antagonistic at times. Where they're like, well, we we can't avoid, we can't find a better outcome. So I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do this bad stuff because I think this is the best outcome. Is me doing the bad thing, right? Um, and so it 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 makes me wonder about it, it makes me wonder about the anti spirals just because the one of the ways that we have overcome now sometimes we've just had to defeat them, Lord Genome. But even defeating Lord Genome, Lord Genome is now a Futurama ghost head on our computer ship. And, you know, Roshu, obviously, we, we just sort of, you know, empathized with and helped him overcome. But it definitely makes me wonder how much the show is going to, and I, this is not something I remember too much of, but how much we're going to empathize the anti-spirals. Because if if the the idea here is that they were once like us, but then they, they thought that there was this one weird trick that would destroy the universe... You know, what, like what? What does that mean for them now? Like, can we can we convince them? Like, actually, it's okay. Or like, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I'm I'm curious actually moving forward how that is going to land. Uh, I I have a, you know a better idea of how this show ends, and I have a, a possible response to that. But I'm curious how it'll land on this watch. Steven Hero, any any closing thoughts? No, we hit all my beats. Uh, it was a good episode. I, I had less notes for the second one. I just appreciated the action. I was devastated by the action, but I certainly appreciated it. Oh yeah, I mean, completely. The the it's something that we we can't really talk about as other than saying it's good. But the the space action is exciting. Uh, it's probably you know if you were looking for just a like ah, clean shot of that space opera action that you know without the emotional devastation of Gunbuster like this episode delivers actually it's got both of that a little bit <laughs> um but moving forward i'm i'm curious to see how how we pay off some of the bigger ideas uh i can remember being uh having some friction with some of the ending beats of gurn the gone but i wonder how it sits now as a, as a fucking 30 year old has been uh but having said that uh i was one of your hosts ignis maddox steven hero pmc trilogy and you can catch us next time where we'll be stuck in a mind labyrinth. Not a joke. Nope, no jokes. <laughs> no jokes! <laughs> nope, no jokes.
All right.